Actually, this is a question I have to you. I mean, I've been really surprised by how willing people are to come and be a guest on a podcast. There is maybe the slight caveat that I've mainly asked people I know so far, but even so far, the people I have, I've asked who I don't know have pretty much all said yes within, you know, I write an email a day later that say, sure, this sounds great. Is this something that you've also experienced? Or, I mean, because it seems to me also you are asking more, you're asking like the almost household names within academia, whilst I'm asking like the people whose work I know, whose papers I've read, in the, like irrespective of how famous they are in that sense. So I'm, I've always been curious, like whether you have to like write 20 emails to get one yes or how that works out. Yeah, you know, uh, I've actually also been surprised by the by the high hit rate. Um, I'd say my my sort of yes ratio is about fifty percent. Um, so obviously, a lot of these people that I'm uh, trying to get on are are pretty busy, and they get lots of offers to do stuff. Um, so definitely, uh, a lot of them have you know valid reasons for not doing it. But yeah, mine mine's around fifty percent. Uh, I'd, I'd say and. Definitely, I think part of it is the nature of podcasting. So, um, you know, people like to have conversations and it's not very much effort for them to come on here and do it. You know, there's not a lot of prep. And I think that that is something appealing about that. So it's a, it's a relatively high and enjoyable payoff for something that doesn't have a lot of effort involved. Uh, and then the other thing is that um, I think that there is... Um, a combination of something about the nature of my show where it's a little bit more personal and that's not always a question or a, a sort of program of questions that academics are always going to get asked and also i just have my uh what is it my um my cold email dialed in i i have a, a really great cold okay. email uh that i hit people with okay uh well i uh, so there were last two questions related to that the um, first one is, so you said you ask more personal questions. Is that something that you think makes people more or less likely wanting to come onto the show? It's a mixed bag um, because I think it's, uh, you know, academics are always going to get asked about, oh, so you are famous for answering this question. Tell me about your answer to this question, right? That's the thing that someone's always going to ask them. But then if you come at them and say, well, you know, I see you're famous for answering this question. How did you get interested in that question in the first place? That's something that very few people are going to ask them. And so to me, I think a lot of people are drawn to being able to talk about that and, you know, just being able to talk about themselves because some because to some extent, most people like to do that a lot. And um, but then also, I think that uh, uh, there I've gotten a few responses explicitly because they don't want to talk about themselves. But that's much rare. <laughs> that's much rare. Uh, and it was also so like someone I, said, like, yeah, I'd love to talk about my, my personal life or. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally had uh, one person who was like, uh, I won't disclose their name, but they were a very famous psychologist <laughs> okay. who I look up to a lot. And they were they were like, well, you know, the podcast sounds great and I wish you the best luck, but I won't do it because I don't believe it's it's worthwhile to talk about myself uh, uh, versus uh, because I think the work should be front and center. And to be honest, I was super impressed by that. I thought that was super badass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I guess... To some extent, uh, maybe that is a slight overlap then between the what I'm trying to do and what you are doing. Like, I, I'm not that interested in the personal things per se, but I am interested in kind of the stuff that didn't make it into the paper often. Yeah. Um, so like that, for example, that question is something I'm also really interested in. And that was, for example, really interesting when I talked to Aaron about this, because it was like a, it, you had this whole discussion in the field and his just come 
came completely out of nowhere, it seemed to me, like a completely new approach to the whole thing. So I asked him, like, what, like, how did that come about? And he said, like, well, I was just trying to, like, feel, like, basically reverse engineer it and think, like, how could I make this? And then I simulated it and then suddenly there it was. <laughs> and that, um, yeah. So I, I am also really interested in this kind of, like, how did people... I think that's a really interesting point about um, academic papers, which in one sense, they're an extremely efficient means of communicating information, which is that you know exactly what's going to be said in what order. And so you can you can really get a complicated thing into your mind from, uh, uh, in, in a relatively short period of time. However, they're extremely inefficient in, the, in another sense because they're so rigid. There's all the stuff uh, that's just not... Um, you know, sort of standard stuff to put in there that gets left out, which might in fact be really interesting. And yeah, uh, yeah, so there I needs agree. to be another format for exploring those things. Plus they're also boring as hell for the most part. Uh, and uh, whereas podcasts as a form tend to be way more engaging just based on the number of people that listen to podcasts versus read academic papers. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I think that it, uh, you know, discussing these sort of uh, things is a welcome addition to the official documents that represent the results. Yeah, exactly. I, I, and I especially agree with what you said about addition here, because I think, um, I mean, I actually read a lot of papers and I, despite you saying they're all very boring, I kind of enjoy quite a lot. Um, well, that's why you're getting your PhD, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, yeah, I think there's just so much that, I mean, yeah, also, as I said, like, it's an efficient format, so it wouldn't really make sense to put in all this other stuff if basically, like, you know, a paper has a specific purpose. And hopefully per podcasts or other media can provide a different kind of purpose. Um, wait, now I forgot, forgot the second point. Cold emails. Oh, your, your cold email, exactly, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. This is it's actually a, a kind of interesting because I, I realized after you responded to, m to my request, I realized I'd kind of forgotten almost to describe the podcast it seemed to me um i have to admit even though we had like no contact prior to that email somehow i just assumed you were going to say yes just because <laughs> we're like both doing You're podcasts like, guy, and doing it, like uh, yeah. yeah no just like fair. because of the shared like we're doing a phd and it seems like i don't know exactly what you're doing and maybe we'll get to that like but vaguely social neuroscience or something like that um both interested in writing a podcasting and some other like yeah, he's definitely gonna say yes and then i almost didn't explain what i'm trying to do <laughs> <laughs> um no i totally i was i was a shoe in the whole time so you were you were correct in that <laughs> assumption um but the thing that i've been surprised about so you, you were you were mentioning how you've talked to a lot of people that you know and i reach out to people who are you know more public figures or whatever at least so far that's the that's the trend for our different shows but the thing that i've been sort of shocked by and even taken aback is that the lowest hit percentage that i have so the people who are most likely to say no are the people who i know personally um really and uh they may not be my best friend of all time but it's like i've worked with them or like i you know have have a long-standing history of expressing interest in their work and i send them a message and i'm like hey I'm doing this podcast, uh, you know, uh, we'll describe what the message says uh, more generally in a second. Uh, and I've been just I've been, I've been shocked by how many of those people say no, whereas all of the, the, the like the majority of people that I don't know uh, say yes. 
And I think what it is, is that because in one case, it's sort of like, you know, some, somewhere between a personal favor and taking on, you know, more responsibility from your students. Uh, so it's about you giving to a, uh, you know, another, ent- uh, another person, you know, either, either, you know, whatever your commitment level is to them, just, just academics are so, they've got so much responsibility in terms of their charges and it's just adding to that plate. Whereas when you reach out to someone you don't know, it's not about the personal connection. It's about you offering them a platform to, uh, you know, further their work and that something. And so I feel like there's a really big conceptual distinction there is what I found, which I was really surprised by that. Both how many of the people that I don't know say yes and how many people that I do know uh, say no. Yeah, that really just does surprise me because, I mean, I, I've basically only contacted people I've asked so far. Uh, I don't know. I've only, I've only asked people who I know so far and all of them have said yes. And, um, but then again, even I've, I've now asked four people who I don't know uh, two said yes. One, I mean, I only sent the email two days ago, and so he hasn't responded yet. And the other person said, "Sounds really cool, but like Corona, I have children and stuff, and I'm like right now I can't." But ask me again in half a year. That's a that's a tough uh, caveat right now at the sort of uh, beginning of Corona. So I've actually been taking a break from the podcast for the past month, and it's been awesome. I've been taking a break from pretty much everything. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that because there's, there's been no episodes. There's been no June. episodes. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if anyone noticed, but uh, but anyway, I have. Um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's very that's that's very kind and sensitive of you to notice. But um, <laughs> let's see. So uh, yeah, at the beginning, I was sort of like, mm, well, who's who's going to have the highest probability of having additional time to do things? And that's when I reached out to Steven Pinker. Um, who I was like, okay, well, Steven Pinker spends most of his time doing talks and shit anyway. Um, so uh, now that all his talks are canceled, he doesn't have kids, uh, uh, you know, all of the stuff, uh, it's not like he's going to have nothing to do, but, uh, all of his, the things that he was going to do uh, probably would have fallen through. And so that's when I reached out to him and that one came through. However, I think the, the asterisk there is that if you look at just, if you, if you follow Steven Pinker, if you just search him in Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, he goes on everyone's podcast. So it's almost not, I don't even know that it's a, it's a badge of, of merit to get him on. People look at that and they're like, wow, that's like, that's a big name. It must've really taken exactly. some finagling to get that. And it's like, honestly, uh, I don't think so. I think uh, he, he, like, he is just, he was willing to provide his perspective and opinion into any vacuum into which uh, he has the opportunity to do so, um, uh, which is glorious. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he is, famous as he is is because he takes every damn opportunity he has to um present himself like that um and uh yeah that's really interesting i would have yeah. somehow assumed almost the opposite that he yeah mm-hmm. actually i have one question so um, have you read m- many of his books then i'm assuming oh uh, yeah I've, I've spent way too many hours reading his stuff so i have one question this is something that i've only experienced with stephen pinker's books and that really confuses me yeah so I think I've now bought four of his books and I've never gotten beyond page around 150. Yeah. And I, I finish every book I read pretty much, but somehow every single one of his books, I, I started, I'm really interested. And then after around a hundred pages, I lose interest. Okay. And I don't know. And I, and I can't identify why. I think and this is only with his books. I think this is really fair. So let's take uh, a case, a case study. I don't know if you, if you read this one, but better angels of our nature. Um, uh, no, I assume I, that's, I, that's what I want to try to with 
um, Enlightenment Now, if maybe you picked up that one, which is... Uh, that's that's one I have at page 180 at least. So I, I assume, I haven't read Enlightenment Now, um, but I assume it's uh, making a very similar argument. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a, a corollary argument to uh, Better Angels. So um, Enlightenment Now is about how um, the world's getting better. And uh, Better Angels is about how the world is not getting worse. Um, right. And okay. us, all the bad things are, are going away. And so uh, the reason why it's hard to get through 800 pages of um, Better Angels is that if you believe this statement, which can be summed up somewhere between a, a statement and a, a paragraph, which is that overall, most of the things that we don't want to happen in society are happening less and less in the places which they happen most. If you, if you just mentally entertain some version of that proposition, then you have got the, uh, the most important parts of Better Angels. Because every page of that um, uh, book is just, it's, it's just reiterating a different version of that thesis. And yeah, you could pick up some details. They may or may not be interesting. Um, but a lot of it is just um, saying, uh, and this is where it gets to his books more generally, here is a proposition which is going to engage quite a bit of controversy. That's that's part of the key. And uh, I am going to hit you with every single piece of evidence that I can find uh, in favor of that uh, thing. So you're not actually the like, in terms of like entropy, in terms of like the information that you're gaining. Um, I, there's an argument to be made that it's not all that high on a page to page thing. If you just accept the overall thesis, um, which takes about 180 pages to get on board with the, the main argument, you know, right. So that's, that, that would be my theory on that. Yeah, that's so I think, so I, as I said, I haven't read better angels of our natures of our nature, but I have read enlightenment now. And with that book, what you're saying is exactly true. Um, I think the ones before, I mean, I can't remember this was usually a few years that I read them, but I think they might be a bit different, but with um, Enlightenment now, you're 100 percent on the on the money. Um, Did you read uh, because, Sense of Style? Uh, I started. <laughs> I was I was wondering about that one because that's that's my favorite uh, Pinker book. So I'm wondering what your take on on that one is. I think I got bored in the linguistic diagrams, how different words relate to each other. I don't know. I, it, I think that's at least. When I, 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 this is the thing. I, this must have been at least five years ago that I read that, or didn't right. read it, I guess. <laughs> um, but just quickly about Lightman now, because I, I exactly agree. It, they're they're the ideas that you know this these Enlightenment values help the world get better, and so it it is split into I don't know how many chapters, but each on a different topic. And it's like okay, now we're going to read how war is not happening as much. It's like it's good, but you basically you see all the titles of the chapters like poverty well i can see where this one's going <laughs> like it's probably gonna get better over time and every chapter is like that and he i mean he discusses all the things and it's often very um how should we say you do understand the issue a bit better and what some of the more subtle problems are but yeah it is exactly that it's been it's been sitting in my uh, on my desk more or less for like half a year now or something because i thought like do i really want to spend time reading how these topics are getting better uh it like yeah. the the thing is is that uh in a way he is extremely averse to narrative which is why his work is so powerful from an intellectual standpoint because he's not trying to trick you in any way he's trying to just consider the evidence but that's also why his books tend to be hard to read which is because if you think about 
sort of what a narrative is from a reader's perspective. It is the experience of holding your book and saying, well, gee, I wonder what happens in the next page. And then you flip that and then you find out. Whereas with the Pinker book, like you're saying, you, you hold your book and you're like, gee, I wonder what happens in the next page. The chapter is called Poverty. You know exactly what's going to happen. You, there's, no, there's no question what's going to happen. And so it's, it's antithetical to what a narrative is from a reader's perspective. It's core like that. But wait, before, we, need, we need to talk about the cold email. We need to get into yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you're called, you're very proud of it, clearly. <laughs> Wait, no, okay, but so this is, so here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's my theory about this, is that the entire podcast uh, that I do turns on how good that cold email is. That is the bottleneck, right? Because at the end of the day, okay, maybe a long time from now, once I've established myself, people will listen to it because they are interested in me. But that's way down the road of that sort of thing happening. So um, people's engagement with my show is going to be a function of how interested they are in um, the other people that I bring on there and how little I fuck it up. Um, So to the extent to which I can bring on interesting people and, um, you know, uh, allow them to be interesting without screwing it up, that's going to be success in the near term for my show. And so the bottleneck for that is, can I get, interesting people that I'm excited about talking to and that other people will want to listen to. So to me, it's the most crucial point of the whole enterprise, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually also, I I've listened to the ones where I was interested in the guest. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at the point yet where I listen to every episode of your podcast, but I'm at that where like, eh, that sounds like an interesting guest. I'll listen to that one. Yeah. And I think that's the nature of interview podcasts is that you have a couple interviewers that you trust. Um, uh, so for me, I really like uh, Krista Tippett on Being. Is I think she's one of she's Wait, one of the, the interviews. Krista Tippett. Krista Tippett on Being, um, okay, and she is. Um, it's yeah, it's not really necessarily in our circle of psychology and neuroscience and that sort of stuff. Uh, but she, to me, is probably the best interviewer out there besides Oprah. Um, and uh, so I, I, I take a lot from her. I take a lot from um, Sam Harris. Uh, I even like Dax Shepard a lot. If, if um, uh, Who's he's Dax got, Shepard? So he's this, he's this actor. He's famous for playing dumb people. But it turns out in real life, he's really smart. And um, so he brings on everyone from uh, academics, you know, famous academics to famous actors. And he is able to walk this line between being uh, really dumb and really smart. And by doing so, he's able to encompass this really, really broad scope of humanity, right? Because there's something about dumb conversations that are attractive, right? Like that's the majority of what reality TV is, is people doing dumb shit or talking about dumb shit. Um, so there's something really important to the human experience about that. But yet also, you know, as academics, we, I mean, we want, we want, we want ideas, we want smart stuff. And, um, and uh, you know, in being simultaneously both of those things, Dak Shepard does that really well. Anyway, um, uh, so yeah, but the point is, is that you have three interviewers who are able to bring on whomever they want and are really good at what they do. And do you think I listen to every one of those episodes? No way. I just go through and be like, yeah, I heard of that person. They, I, you know, oh, yep, it sounds good. Or every once in a while you look at the, um, the topics of uh, what they're talking about. I'm, I'm just describing how I do it. And so that's how I assume most other people do it. I think that the, um, you know, you know, there's going to be people who really like the, 
um, the the stuff that you do at a consistent enough basis that they'll put you into their every week slot. Shout out to my my buddy Steve, who I know listens every week uh, to uh, Cognitive Evolution since day one. Uh, but uh, anyway, okay, so okay, so it's cold email. I've been, I've been plugging this now. Let's let's talk about it. Yeah. So the That's there good. are there are three sections to it. Um, mm-hmm. They're basically three paragraphs. So the first is um, it is the personalization of why I am reaching out to this person, and it's basically me telling them how much I love their stuff, which. Uh, it has to be true. Otherwise, like, why am I even talking to that person if there's no, if there's nothing I would put there? Um, but it's basically me just being effusive and being like, wow, look, you did this stuff. And I just thought that was so great. And I loved it. And uh, look, uh, all, all that sort of stuff. And it's really just, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 doing two things or it's doing a number of things, but I think two of them primarily. One is saying, look, this is not just a template email. Um, this is really, I'm reaching out to you, not just because you have a bunch of Twitter followers, but I really deeply have engaged with your stuff and I care about it. Uh, and that's the first thing that everyone's going to look for is, uh, you know, cause that's even, that's how you get someone like, even like me to reject you is if you just sent me a template thing, I might be like, mm, like whatever. Yeah. Right. But, um, so that's, that, that, that's a big thing. Um, uh, but then too, I mean, what, what is the best predictor of whether or not someone wants to help you? It is uh, uh, essentially whether or not you can make them feel good by doing it, right? And because that's that's what they get out of it at the end of the day is it you know they're doing something uh, because they want it feels good to them and they want to do it. And so um, sort of coming out with that and saying that uh, I think is important to sort of seed that the kind of emotion that you want them to feel. And then the, the other sort of ancillary consideration. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, anyway, the point is, is that, um, yeah, so you, you sort of establish that you are talking to them directly and uh, that you, you really value the work. Oh, the other thing I was going to say was that, um, you know, as academics, we spend the majority of our time talking about how shitty other people's work is, right? We, someone, <laughs> no one ever, you know, like when someone raises a, a, a their hand and like talks about something in a, in a seminar, it's like, hey, you yeah. know, thanks for the lovely presentation. But I noticed you screwed up the most important yeah. thing and that, you know, and then you dive into, right? So that's what academic discourse is like. And so that's also what creative discourse is, is, is like a lot. It's, I mean... Certainly every once in a while you get someone who writes in and says, Hey, you know, I really love your stuff. And that, and that means a lot when, when someone does that, but the majority of people who are motivated to take the time to reach out and talk to you, uh, are people who want to flag something that they took umbrage with, right? That's the nature, uh, of, 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 you know, when people choose to reach out and, and make their opinions known is when they're pissed off about something. So, um, Right. So, okay. So that's that first paragraph is establish that personal connection. Yep. Makes sense. Yep. So, I mean, I kind of will do that. I yeah. try to do that too, but I kind of do that later in the email. Yeah. So what my, I mean, my template is basically like, I describe that when I do a podcast, especially because I don't have anything to show them right now. Then in the second one, I say, basically, this is why I want to talk to you and what I want to talk about. Yeah. And then like, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you how to do your stuff. Your, your thing worked with me and I thought it was good. Um, and, uh, you did, you did get to the, um, you did get to the point there. I guess I, I, I'm surprised. I'm always surprised when people take the time to read something. Um, 
Because I yeah yeah um, that's but all, that's also my day, worry at doing it at a second. But like here's the thing: I think they first, do read yeah. it. I do think they do read it. Um, but to me, the first filter that people are going to put you through is: are they reaching out to me? And if you can if you can personalize it in that way, that's the first filter. That's the first barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to look at their schedule and be like, "Oh, can I take on another thing?" Or "Oh, so what exactly?" So like you said. You may have omitted key information about what your podcast actually was, but that wasn't that super important, uh, uh, it turns out, right? Because I could kind of intuit what was happening uh, and, and yeah. that sort of stuff. Just an observation. Okay, second, second thing is that you have um, the why. You have why is this podcast happening? Why am I doing it? Why am I reaching out to you? All that sort of stuff. And... Um, uh, this is uh, another part of my pitch that I've refined, which is essentially that, uh, you know, as you and I have sort of talked about, I think, off air, at the end of the day, academia and academics spend a lot of time talking about content, but rarely do we talk about the experiences of the people who create that content or the stories behind them. And I think this is really valuable information for people who are in positions like you and me, who are sort of starting off as early career researchers and grad school or, or postdocs or whatever it is. And uh, we want to know that the people that we look up to, the people that we uh, sort of venerate, were at some point in their career just like us, right? And went through the same sort of stuff and had the same sort of issues and also had uh, stuff get screwed up in graduate school and had to deal with these personal things. And, and, and also that there's a human behind the science. That to me uh, is both super impor- important and what I'm really interested in. So that's what I explained to them in that. And um, saying that, you know, look, I think that it would be valuable to have your story as a part of this collection. Um, and then the third one, the third paragraph is really simple. It's like, look, I'm asking you to do a remote conversation for an hour, no prep, hopefully it'll be fun. So super, super clear ask yeah. and just um, really concise. So that's the, that's the format that I, that I generally use. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I feel like also this is something. I mean, do you th- I'm assuming you refined this over time, um, or was it? I mean, like I I took for the first one to write, and I don't know like how much I must have spent like a few hours, like also because I wasn't quite sure what the podcast was going to be. Yeah. So through writing that, I also very glad to find it out. But now it's uh, yeah. I asked someone a few days ago, and that took like almost no time because I like I knew why I wanted to yeah. Yep. Everything with these sort of things is a work in progress. You have a minimum viable product. I'm a big believer in the MVP and you get it out into the world. Um, You try that first iteration and then you make it better every time you do it. But here's something I'm interested in. I'm interested to hear uh, a little bit more about your vision for for what this show is and why you wanted to start it. And yeah, I guess just, you know, what, what you're hoping to to do with it and, and, and what you envision the show to be like. Well, it's very open right now still because, I mean, there's a... F- so the brief answer is I don't really have a clear vision and in part that's intentional. Um, I found that often it takes, you know, you have to do something to figure out exactly what you want to do. Um, so I remember the very first interview I did um, with my supervisor, um in that one, I just wanted to. Actually, that was I think even before. I think before I actually encountered your podcast, I was doing something more like that, and I really wanted, in his case, to kind of take him through like his academic career. Like, what did you do then? How did you go? Why did you go there? 
how did that process work out, all that kind of stuff. But then whilst I did it, I realized like, nah, <laughs> I'm not like, I'd like to focus on like a few individual things and then go more in depth on that rather than going through someone's career and like spending five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes there. Um, and so I found just that with every podcast, I mean, as you said, right, every time you do something, you learn something about it and you change it. And right now I feel like it's still in the weird phase where um, it is still changing quite a bit. I mean, there are a few things that I definitely want to do. One is that um, I often, and I'm assuming most people do this, I'll read a research paper and I think this is really cool. And then you have questions about it, but you don't usually don't know the person and you usually or often at least don't know someone who knows the person or at least not that you know of and so you're kind of just left sitting there with your questions and you can try and answer them yourself you can ask people but it kind of doesn't go anywhere and um so one hope is just that you know all these papers that i really like i can just talk to the author about the paper and say like why did you do this why do you do that you know just kind of discuss the thing in more detail. And um, I think that this is what academia often tries to do. Uh, you have talks, you invite people in, they talk about the research, you can ask questions, you can meet the person. But that's a very, very inefficient way of doing it, I think, because you have to have like 20 people or something listen to one person at one time. And, um, you know, there's only so many questions that you can really ask in a talk. Like as soon as there's like more than a question every five minutes, it gets annoying. So, um, part so of okay, let just... me see if I if I sort of have the vibe, which would be that so you know someone gets invited to your university to talk at you know a seminar that you have in your department, and then they give that talk. Then you know there's a couple questions afterwards, but then after that talk, you go out to a bar for a pint, and it's just the two of you, uh, and then no that's one, yes. when you talk about. You know, sort of like, well, you know, you just said you collected the data. So what does that actually mean? And then you get really deep into that. But then it reminds you that, oh, well, it's because, you know, there's this weird thing from way back in the day and you get off track. So is that the kind of uh, vibe? That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely. It's this kind of, I feel like, as we mentioned, or as we talked about earlier, papers only include certain about certain kinds of information, even though a lot of other kinds of information is also super important. Um, so that's part of it. But then another thing is I just have a lot of interests and would like, you know, same thing, like to talk to the people about whatever that interest is. Um, so I'm right now I'm trying, how should we say, I don't really want to restrict it to academia only, even though I think, uh, in the beginning, probably most people will be academics. Yeah. Um, I think to me, the way I think about that is sort of a... Uh, beachhead market, an initial target market that's relatively circumscribed uh, that would broadens out over time, right? So clearly, I think for both of us, you know, we're going for interviews with the kind of people who would inter interest people like ourselves, right? So relatively yep. niche market of graduate student in psychology, potentially, you know, even with specific interests um, and saying, well, those are the people that we're going to talk to. And we're going to refine that and build up, um, you know, a listener base that's sort of centered around that. And for people who are interested in it, we are doing the thing that is going to be dead on 
uh, or I guess I'll speak for myself. I, I don't know what you think about this, but anyway, this is how I think about it. You know, I, I want to do something that's dead on for what someone like me would want to hear about. Someone who's interested in the personal side of things, someone who's interested in these topics, even these, you know, uh, sort of people and uh, in this style of long form open-ended interview. And certainly those are things that not everyone is interested in, right? Even a lot of people, they don't really get the whole long form interview thing. A lot of people are, are not big yeah. on that. And they're like, you know, maybe you should cut it down to like a nice truncated 30 minutes or something like that. But anyway, um, you know, you start off doing that and then over time, uh, you know, you build in other people and I've got several people on my list. Um, some poets that I want to talk to that I really like, um, some musicians and, you know, sort of begin to build out into talking to other kinds of people about the way they come at their ideas from their unique and personal experiences. So, yeah, I, I heard on one in what I can't remember which one, but in one of your podcasts, you actually talk about your strategy. Um, I think you said something like you start off very specifically for grad students and then you kind of try and build something there and then you broaden over time. And I was listening to that and thought, oh, that sounds like a really smart thing to do. Yeah, because I mean, look, <laughs> I'm if not, you... I'm not going to do it, but it sounds like a way better way than what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on what you're trying to get out of the podcast. For me, mine uh, is, you know, in, in a sense, it's a platform building exercise. Uh, and so uh, if you if your goals are different for the the podcast, um, then look, you know, talking about the content, that might be just the number one, uh, priority. Anyway, uh, you know, there's a number of different ways to approach it there. Um, yeah, yeah. but, um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely want it to, uh, start with, uh, you know, cause okay, look, here, here's, here's the thing, right? So if you have, if you set out to start the next great podcast about happiness, well, Look, Lori Santos is already doing happiness labs with Pushkin Industries. She's going to kick your ass because she's better than you are. She's uh, she's smarter than you are. She's got more resources than you have uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. So it's like, OK, if you want to go talk about happiness, great. Um, but it's going to be really hard to do something um, that people uh, wouldn't already have satisfied by listening to that podcast. So for me you have to say, well, what can I do better than anyone else? Or what, what is the thing that I sincerely, you know, want to, want to do that I feel is missing that I, I, that I would want to listen to that I don't think is satisfied out there. And I think that's, that sounds like that's where you're coming from was what, what do I want to hear that I don't uh, have access to, which is these, these kinds of in-depth conversations about the material and then go out there and create that thing. And the, the nature of, of what that looks like is that, that's going to appeal to a very small number of people at the start. And as you establish that, that's when you can grow to those bigger, bigger audiences. Yeah. I'm still don't know quite how to think about that because in one sense, I'm very certain that what I'm doing is going to be very niche. I mean, talking about to like one research about one paper they've read, uh, written, unless that happens to be some paper that's like, you know, mentioned in like New York times or whatever, unless it's something like that, which I'm not going for then the market's going to be super niche. But then again, even like niche papers are often downloaded a hundred times or whatever, right? Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Here, here's another thing um, that's going to be a big benefit that you may or may not realize yet, um, which is that doing this podcast, if you think about it, it is the best possible networking opportunity in the world. 
And I mean that, that in the best sense reason, of networking, yeah. right? So you and I, yeah. uh, we're having this nice conversation. We're connecting. We're going to know each other afterwards. If we see each other uh, in real life, we're going to, you know, we're going to be buddies. And <laughs> if, uh, if that ever happens, if that with ever COVID. is even a metaphysical <laughs> possibility in the future. Um, yeah. And uh, you're going to have that week after week with uh, whatever, whoever the people are, um, you know, people that you care about and look up to and, and want to connect with. You're going to have that over and over again. And so not everyone is going to come out being your best friend. But, you know, if you if you think about, you know, so from my perspective, a lot of the academics that I talk to, I get more in depth about who they are and the way they think about things in their personal life than they ever get with their graduate students. Right. Because most, yeah, yeah, most definitely. conversations between graduate student and PI are going to be like, like they're going to be within the defined spectrum of, of research and that sort of stuff. And every once in a while, maybe your PI has one beer too many and just lets a little bit slip at the, <laughs> um, you know, and then you get a little insight into the mind of, of, of whoever she might be. Um, but um so the conversations that I'm having that are explicitly about, so tell me about your, your personal life um, in a, you know, sort of historical sense, not, you know, give me juicy details about issues at home. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the point being that in an hour, we'll get deeper uh, than, you know, like these kinds of conversations that are about, hey, let's go deep on a topic. Doesn't matter if it's personal or academic. That, that's a connection right there. And it's, and it's a ultimately a relatively rare one. And so... Um, even if no one listens to your podcast, uh, which I don't think will be the case. Cause I think that's another thing that's always surprised, surprises podcast people. Everyone that I've talked to who has a podcast, um, is like, you know, I was just shocked that anyone listened to it at all. And actually the numbers turn out to be <laughs> relatively large. Like, um, you know, what is it? Uh, two psychologists, four beers. Uh, McKeaton's like, that's something he said, same with Dave, uh, Fizarro from very bad wizards that have been around since like. 2012 or something like that. So no matter how silly one thinks one's own podcast is, there are still people out there, uh, you know, if, if you do an authentic job of it, uh, that are that are going to tune in and be like, hey, yeah, this is my shit right here. Yeah. And I mean, to me, I think also what I would imagine in for my co- podcast, especially be the case, is that you'll have people who only listen to one episode. Just because like one researcher, like for example, let's say Aaron, he has um, a paper that's fairly famous in the field. Like people who are interested in that field might listen to it, but not to anything else. So that's, but I definitely agree with the networking thing. So, um, that, that's another reason that I thought like, especially because, so what I'm doing is really at the intersection of a lot of economic psychology, neuroscience, some AI, even or sociology or whatever. Like it's, it's a lot of different fields and, um, I mean, in part, that can just be a bit overwhelming because it's just so much information. Every field does stuff differently. Um, but I also feel like, you know, just for example, we had one guest speaker who came in and who had a bit of knowledge of, of economics. And so I could just ask him like two, three questions and just he could just clarify what that field was trying to do or something like that. And that just made yeah. a huge, um, it just clarified things so much more than I would have had I tried to like, you know, read an economics textbook or whatever, right? So that's why um, journalists actually, interview people instead of quoting from their texts, right? Um, yeah. Uh, because when you when you read an academic's paper, if you are not versed in that academic jargon, 
then you're going to have a hard time getting getting into it, even if it's a relatively basic thing, as long as the field is sufficiently sort of disparate from your for your area of expertise. Um, which is why, um, you know, if you, if you read popular pieces about science, the journalist calls up the scientist and is like, hey, explain this to me. And in the course of going over the same information they would cover in a paper, basically, they explain it much more clearly because, I mean, that's just the way uh, linguistic communication works and one of the reasons why writing is so difficult. Yeah, and... Yeah, so that's part of that. But then um, to the networking aspect that I wanted to get to was that also, like, you know, my supervisor does cognitive neuroscience, these kinds of, he doesn't know many economists. He doesn't know, like, whatever, like sociologists or something, right? It's just not in, at all his field. So I think, yeah, as you mentioned, like getting to, um, so like, one, one idea is that I'll just, also, like game theories, focus on the different aspects there from all the different disciplines and talk to people from different disciplines to kind of have like one area where people can really understand that. That's like a sub goal, I guess, of the podcast that will, by definition, lead me to get to know lots of people in the fields um, and, you know, whatever may happen from that. But I think it usually is a good thing. So I have a couple questions for you, for you if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so the first one is, this is something I thought about a lot in the beginning uh, of my show, and I, I know where I landed on it, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it right now, is what you're trying to do, a uh, conversation or an interview? And I think these are uh, two very different mental models, though in casual conversation, uh, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine to sort of interchange them. Uh, but the concepts uh, that sort of people bring to them where in a conversation you basically, there's an assumption that you're going to have 50-50, approximately 50-50 um, split of airtime and that both sides are going to sometimes answer questions, sometimes ask questions uh, and go back and forth. Whereas interview uh, has two main differences. One is that it's, you know, 80-20 in terms of airtime split. And then... Uh, one side is going to be primarily asking questions and the other side will probably never ask questions. That's actually a really shocking thing when it happens in um, uh, an interview. So if, if you hear, if you're listening to an interview podcast and the person who's getting interviewed asks the interviewer a question, you realize, whoa, I was not expecting that at all. And uh, I, 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 this is a trick that I learned from listening to um interviews with the author, Elizabeth Gilbert. She does this really well. She's a super good interviewer and interviewee. Uh, she, her, she's famous for um, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, since that's probably a book, uh, if you started, you know you only got 100, 150 pages into it. But uh, at any rate- I haven't started that. <laughs> you have to start. It's really good. It's really good. Um, but uh, anyway, the point is, is that it violates the mental model. So interviews or conversations- yeah, that is a good question. And it's, I think, something that I've been uh, at times, let's say, I, I think I often have not made that boundary clear. And I've often, well, even when asking people, I said, like, it's supposed to be a normal conversation, but then it is kind of an interview. Um, so I find it a bit difficult to ask. So I think it is technically an interview. I think most of the time I answer, or I ask, sorry, um, I ask probably more than 90% of the questions. 
but usually in the conversations I've had so far, the other person has also asked questions. Um, so it's not a completely um, one-sided thing in terms of who asks and who answers, but most of the time. But yeah, I find it I find it difficult, uh, slightly difficult though, because I think unless it is kind of conversational and low key. Or rather, I think it, it kind of has to be conversational low-key for the other person to open up a bit and talk naturally and not kind of have this like, well, this is the paper, this is what the design, you know, to like formally go through the paper almost again. Like, I think you, it has to be fairly conversational for the podcast to make sense in that. I mean, or let's put it this way. If it was like a f- completely formal interview, we could do it by paper. Like, we wouldn't really, you know, I could just send them a list of questions. Um, but... So yeah, <laughs> somewhat uh, probably an interview, but also a bit of a conversation. Uh, I could imagine it would also depend on who the guest is. Um, so if it's someone, um, you know, there's some people I want to contact soon where I've read several of their papers and I have very specific questions. Yeah, that's probably going to be more like an interview. But I could imagine, for example, today that this is going to be a bit more of a conversation, or it already is more of a conversation. Yeah, yeah, I um. Definitely the the casualness thing and how to how to so there's there's a there's a tension here which is that you have this red word at the bottom of the screen which is recording and whenever someone sees that on they're going to be bringing this part of themselves that is this presenter kind of self where they're trying to come off with a certain um, formality or at least there's sort of this expectation of formality because you know this is this is on record this is forever you know that that sort of thing but like you were saying the ideal outcome is something that uh um is it's 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 light right it's not it's not it's not formal it's not hey let's read the the paper from abstract intro methods etc it's you know let's 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 chat about it um so yeah how to keep up that uh, casual nature uh, is something that I've, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you, you continually are striving to, to refine how you do that and, and all those uh, sort of things. So I definitely think that that will uh, gain clarity for you as you go uh, through it. That is actually something that I wanted to ask you about because um, I think you do that quite well. Um, I think you do manage to have a kind of, like one thing when I was listening to some of your podcasts that I, th- you know, you how you often notice the things that you're not sure or the things that you think might be your flaws or something like that. And At when the I was end, listening like to after podcast, the interview? Uh, sorry? Uh, like, mm-hmm. like I do that after the interview is uh, like it, it ends and I say, okay, that was my interview with so-and-so. Right. This is what I think I screwed up on that. Oh, right. You even do that. Yeah. I mean it more in terms of, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. You do that. I forgot about that. But well, sorry, what I meant, I was trying to make a very simple point. Okay, go in for that, it. Um, I think when I listen to your podcast, I feel like that guy's really good at making the other person feel comfortable talking to them. And I'm not sure how good I'm able to do that. Um, so that was just something I wanted to ask you about, like whether, I mean, you know, it's not like here are my top three tips for <laughs> making people calm, uh, like tell a joke at the beginning, you know, whatever. Um but is there, yeah, can, can you just expand on that topic a bit? I can. So definitely that's one of the the natural things that just, um, you know, that's easier for me um, 
like you know, that just that comes more naturally than other things. So that's one thing. Um, but I do have a lot of strategies that I use to get better at it um, because I do think it is actually a very difficult thing to do, no matter what your natural proclivities are. And so uh, I've experimented with a lot of different things. But um, here's a few things that I have um, tried. Uh, so one of them is uh, recording from the very beginning. So from the time the person enters the chat, so there's no talking between us before it's on record. And I tell them that, of course, beforehand, like in the email. Um, but one problem that I've always had is that when you have the recording going, there's this thing where, so you have your, your first 10 minutes where you talk about whatever. Uh, and then you have this downbeat where it's like, okay, I'm going to start recording now. And then the nature of the conversation changes a little bit. And today you, uh, you know, are circumventing it by saying, okay, let's just chat for a while while it's recording. And, um, exactly, yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, you know, whenever it makes sense to start, I'll start. So that's my version of doing that. Um, so, uh, and then, and at the end, there's another thing that I've found, which is you, you stop recording and then, uh, they suddenly become even more interesting than they already were They're, And they, they do that thing, yeah, yeah. but that's when they ask you <laughs> questions and you actually have a real conversation. Um, because then now yeah, you're, right. you're yeah. open uh, about all that sort of stuff. So I'm constantly asking myself that question. How the hell do you get that ending strip? Which is so good because they're they're totally open and you get to know what they actually really think about things. How do you get them to do that while the recording thing is still on? Um, oh, that's so true. I've noticed that like with some guests I've done, it's like, man, these people got so much funnier as soon oh, as yeah. we stopped recording. They tell the jokes. They, they ask you questions. <laughs> they tell you the asides. They didn't. They do. So like, how do you get... So right, that's that's part of the, the issue that um, you know we're trying to solve. Um, another thing, uh, so this is something that I stole from uh, the interviewer Tim Ferriss, which is start off with a question that the the person doesn't expect, right? So if you listen to that Pinker interview, right? So Stephen Pinker interviewed at least a gazillion times every week, and um, often about the same stuff, right? Because he, he's ta tackled certain problems or there's certain problems in the world and people want Pinker to opine on them. So what did I start off with? Naturally, I started off with his collection of cowboy boots. Uh, and he has, you know, five or six in the closet. Uh, and I happen to, to know that because I'm both a Pinker fan and a cowboy boot aficionado. Um, and I just happened to notice that he was always wearing the same pair of black cowboy boots while he was wandering around, um, seeing him out in the wild. And... Uh, so we talked about that. And then I also happened to uh, know from Sense of Style that he, um, his, his wife, uh, 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 Rebecca Goldstein, sorry, I might be getting that last name wrong. Anyway, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, uh, uh, they met um, uh, after having read each other's writing. And he has this line in the book. It's like, I liked the author's prose so much, I married her. Um, <laughs> And so I was like, okay, so tell me about this literary romance. And he goes into this story about how they were, uh, you know, read each other's things, they corresponded briefly, and then they were on this radio interview together, and that's where they um, uh, first hit it off. Um, and between being this sort of weird kind of cowboy boot uh, savant and uh, having this philosophical courtship with his, with his wife, those are the kind of things one doesn't expect from Steven Pinker, from an audience perspective, but then also um, trying to jar Pinker out of um, canned answers. Because that's the thing that you don't want 
um, from whoever you're talking to, interview or conversation or whatever, is you don't want them to give the shtick that they usually give um, that they already have down pat. You want to give them something that they uh, have to respond to in real time, that they know about and they're capable of responding to, um, but is going to elicit something that they haven't already rehearsed to the point of it being uh, a canned response. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably something that I won't suffer with that much because I think most people I, I will be interviewing at least in the beginning will... I mean, like, I I think you also mentioned it with Maria Kornikov, right? I think you mentioned that at the, I think you might have mentioned that at the end of the interview with her, that it was something like you were really trying to get her not to recite the pre-planned lines. Yeah, um, which is hard because she was on book tour. Might, and that's... Uh, exactly, because yeah. she was on book tour, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but so you, you just try and achieve that by uh, asking them questions they might not expect. I mean, but the thing is, like, you could still, like... So I have to say, I haven't actually listened to the one with Stephen Pinker, your interview with Stephen Pinker, interestingly in part, I think because I feel like I've heard him being interviewed so often. Oh, yeah. Um, and maybe, and I was quite surprised to hear what you just said, how you, the questions you asked him. Um, and now I think I will actually go and listen to it because it sounds more interesting than what I expected. But, but here, so to me, it still seems there's a slight problem that you can start off by those questions. But then as soon as you ask, like, so about your book, then they can still like switch, right? So I could imagine at least. So I think this gets into what's really the hardest part of doing an interview well, which is that there's this balance between what's happening in the moment and the structure that you have sort of in your mind. So you can come into whatever interview or, you know, what, you know, let's just use that word ambiguously right now. Um, which, so you come into the conversation and you are like, well, so uh, I have, three specific questions for this person um, that are about their work. I have three general questions, which I ask more or less to everyone. And I have a general sense of how the things are going to flow. First, we're going to talk about topic A. Then we're at some point, we're going to get in topic B. Maybe if we have time, we'll hit topic C. Um, and so as the person who is the leader of the conversation or interviewer, you have to be sensitive in real time to what is actually happening, what the person is saying, what they are doing, what they're getting into detail on that you think plays well. Because people, I mean, as great as tangents are, there are tangents that don't work. There are, there, it is possible that it's like the person is just going off and talking about something and you're like, this isn't interesting. This is just a digression into, you know, some, something. And, you know, this is it, it, like, we just need to get back to, to something uh, more profitable. And uh, I mean that in a less conniving way than it sounded, but, um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. but the, uh, the, um, the point is, is that balancing that trade-off and being both attentive in the moment and um, aware of, uh, you know, sort of the producer's role of, of, of what are we talking about here? Um, are we covering the things that I think would be interesting to covering. Are we going in depth enough in them? Are we going to finish this topic in time to get to the next one in however much time this person gave me? Um, all of those things, doing that really well in you know sort of the abstract collection of all those considerations is what makes um, that is the sort of that is the prime that is the center of gravity of what a a solid interview is, and that's the hardest sort of skill I think to 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 to, to develop over time. And, um, so yeah, that, that plays into 
what you were saying, which is like, okay, you can start off however you want, but then you have to, um, uh, but you, like, it, it still has to have some sort of arc that's going to be uh, comprehensible to whoever is listening from the audience point of view. So one thing that I, one sort of strategy that I use um, for that is that, okay, so you can have interview questions. Everyone's familiar with the concept of a question and that's what you expect interviewers to have or interviewers to have. But um, I often think of what I'm trying to do as uh, a handful of things that I'm trying to get to the bottom of, right? So you have, uh, maybe you have a question which is like, okay, so I saw that you um, started your, uh, your career studying moral psychology and then you transitioned into hardcore electrophysiology. What was the nature of that transition? So you have a question, that was what I just asked, but it's in service of getting to the bottom of something. What, what, what inspired this transition? And so when they start to answer that question, um, maybe they don't quite get to something that speaks to the nature of that transition. They go off and be like, well, you know, like, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, and so you have to think, okay, well, let me, in your mind, you have to say, well, okay, so let me, let me try and revamp that and dig into something that they said or frame it in a different way uh, that helps me get to the bottom of the thing that I'm trying to get to. And so that conceptual model of having a handful of things that you want to get to the bottom of and some working hypotheses about what kind of questions might get you there, that helps negotiate keeping all of those things in mind of, are we making sense? Are we doing something vaguely coherent? Um, uh, is this person giving me the right tone that I want? And all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That is, to me, also the by far hardest part that you're basically trying to do two things at once. You're trying to have a conversation, and you're trying to, uh, yeah, not work through a structure. But yeah, you have a goal, and I mean, so that's why, for example, now I have these these notes here, but they're they're way less than they used to be in the first few interviews. So the well, the first one I didn't prepare at all. Right. Wait, okay, I can't do that. Yeah, I should be more you prepared. That so the second one, yeah, the second one, I went okay. So I had like all these things and these papers I wanted to cover and things I wanted them to say, but that was obviously, I was just like um, putting words into their mouth. So that's why I just ditched all of those and started again. And now I kind of just have like, almost like you said, like a few topics um, that or questions that I'd like to talk about. And then it's always just trying to steer towards that. So I mentioned I had two questions for you. I asked one of them a long time ago. The second one was yes, going to be about yeah, structure. True. So yeah, you, in your email to me, when you reached out, uh, or, you know, when you told me more specifics about what was going to happen, um, you said it was going to be pretty open-ended, that you weren't going to come in uh, with a lot of questions. And uh, I have tried both, you know, sort of approaches from being very uh, married to a handful of questions to like, fuck it, let's just, let's just, you know, whatever happens, happens, man. Let's just have it be free flow. And that, that latter one does not work. Um, it's very yeah. difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering how you're currently thinking about that, um, what you've been testing, uh, what any troubles that you have, whatever, whatever, I don't know, whatever in that space of things you've been thinking about. I think this might be something that I then didn't, how should we say, communicate quite as clearly um, to you because in a way I do have a structure. It's just, I guess I, the point I wanted to make there was that it's not... You know, as I said, I don't have like 20 questions and then I'll just go, okay, question number one. 
and then you say something i'll say okay thank you question number two as if like you know if i'm not going to react to that so i kind of wanted to just say like it's not going to be that because the truth is like now i mean when i look at my notes i have so i want to talk to you about podcasting just because uh we, we share that and in common and because there's stuff i can learn from you and then i have like other stuff i'd like to talk about is how you managed to combine this with doing a phd and all this kind of stuff and um if we get to it, then also this preprint you have. Um, and so I do kind of have that structure roughly in mind. And, but I guess, and I do have like questions or things I want to address in each of them. I just stopped writing those down because I feel like I kept focusing too much on the specifics of the question rather than being in the moment and having the conversation. So, yeah. And then I mean, it's difficult for me to talk about like how this has changed for me much because I've only done five interviews so far right. so you're, you're the sixth or you're the fourth person i'm interviewing but it's the sixth interview and so yeah i went from no structure at all to okay that doesn't work <laughs> to um high very structured that doesn't work either yeah to now i'm just yeah somewhere in between where i have a few points i want to hit and um sometimes i mean sometimes i do have very specific questions uh, like for example the one i asked you earlier about what you do kind of to make the person feel at ease or feel kind of relaxed and calm. But yeah, mainly it's just, these are topics. I think, I think maybe this is more how I think about it. It's more like, this is a topic that could lead to something interesting. Yeah. And then we kind of see what happens. And if I manage to get those questions in that are on the back of my mind, great. If not, well, whatever. Yeah. You know, another quick thing about the, um, um, trying to make people feel comfortable is that you have to be sensitive to what people are most confident talking about so uh academics um are they often have a hard time telling personal anecdotes and stories and that sort of stuff and so you have to but some of them they'll just give it to you and it's amazing and you just you like give them one question and they just talk for an hour and a half you're like great that's the podcast thanks uh, <laughs> bradley Boytek was like that that was like the most fun because like the, the podcast is like an hour and a half and i asked him four questions and the guy just goes off and oh, he also I listened to that one yet. he was also able okay, to do these to amazing he was also able to do this amazing narrative thing where he would uh do this thing where it's like okay so you know here's the thing you asked about and you know like so here's this is the weird thing that happened but in order to understand that you have to go back to the beginning and then he'd start off on this ridiculously far off tangent and then you're like after like 10 minutes from on it you're like where the fuck is this going and then it would invariably come back to exactly where he said it would without him having to plan it at oh, all and cool. it was brilliant i loved it um but i didn't i didn't say i hardly said you know 20 words in the whole thing um <laughs> anyway so being sensitive to what people are most comfortable sort of the mode that they operate in and trying to bring out the best in that because you're not trying to force them to do something different than that you're just trying to bring out the best version of them that's your sort of overall goal as a, an interviewer um but in terms of just the the single easiest so this is this is this is this is a hack um that i found to be really useful for interviewing and so i stole okay. this idea from ira glass um which is there's one question that will always work really well, which is, and how did that turn out differently than you expected? Um, that's the question. And so the reason this, this works really well is because, so for particularly what I'm looking for, it's a little bit different if you're just about the ideas and stuff, but especially if you're, if you're interested in the, the personal stuff. What makes for good interview content is a couple different things. So you want um, a story, you want the anecdote, um, uh, and then you want how they felt about it. 
And so when you ask this, so, so you want someone to say, uh, their ideal answer is like, okay, so, uh, you know, uh, I was in this situation and here's what happened. And you go through the story and then that's how I felt about it, right? So that's what you're trying to get at. And um, the way reason this question works is because it gets you two things. So one is it gets you the story. So what happened? That's you have to describe that in order to uh, describe how it's different than expectation. But because you have to describe expectation, it also gives you a theory about how the world worked. So they, they'll, they'll basically it elicits a response. It's like, so this was my theory of the world. This is how I things. This is how I thought things worked. And then they tell the story. And then at the end of the story, you get their emotional response, but you also get their updated worldview. So it's like now I realize that this theory was not actually how. It, it, it worked, but it was a, a different thing. So that's a question that I always sprinkle in there somewhere um, when I'm trying to get more out of someone is how did that, how did that turn out differently than you expected? Also good if you're talking to just like a friend in a casual conversation and you want to get them to talk a little bit more. So I employ that in my personal life as well. Yeah, that does intuitively sound like a great question. And now I, uh, I, I don't want to like copy questions one-to-one, -one, but that does sound like a oh, really that's, great question. It, that, that's a, that's yeah. one you should steal for sure. Anyway, I could talk about theory of interviewing all day, too long for sure. Uh, and I, uh, I feel like I'm railroading this conversation to that. So if you want to, actually, no, I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> so uh, you are starting a podcast. Uh, you're in the opening stages yes. of it. At what point in your PhD you know, where you're like, oh, I've got all this time on my hands. Uh, I want to, you know, what the, uh, you know, I want to start a, start a podcast. What, uh, what, what's your sort of, yeah. How did you, how did you get into this? That is slightly difficult to answer because I mean, officially in a way I started either I started just after our lab did like a corona lockdown in March or our institute or I started before that I can't remember um, so in a way it did kind of coincide with me commuting less me being you know just having more time at my hands in that sense but I have been wanting to do it for a while and I think the main reason I mean part of it is probably just because now I had a bit more time because of the whole COVID situation but then again I think think that might be more coincidence in the sense that this has been something I've been wanting to do for a few years and it kind of just you know it's been bubbling and getting a bit stronger all the time and it happened to kind of uh, reach a, a threshold where I said okay I'm just going to do this now when the COVID situation happened yeah um, so yeah I think yeah it was around that time I can't tell you exactly when um, but it would have been around March when I started. Then it took me a while to figure out how to do the interview stuff. Then I did a few, then they didn't go that well. So then it took me a bit longer to figure out how to do it properly. Yeah. And so I've been, I mean, I've been doing this now in the sense properly um, for the last two, three weeks. Yeah. Um, since then, I've been using this software and the setup. Um, but yeah, technically since, I think I did my first interview in early April. Something like that. <laughs> I'm not sure I have too much time at my hands, though. <laughs> yeah, that's see, that's <laughs> the thing is that everyone has the has that idea at some point, which is like, you know what? I just start a podcast, right? Everyone's got a podcast. Like, yeah. I, I uh, but there is there's a big startup cost to it. 
and so that's that's um, one of the ways that I've. Uh, so first of all, you know, we've mentioned. Okay, so how do you balance, um, you know, being a PhD student and having a podcast? First of all, I'll flag up front. I haven't been doing a great job of it. I'm 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 currently behind on my PhD work. Um, mostly, it's because of COVID, um, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, I, I can't say that I'm speaking from a point of like, well, you know you know, everything's flawless over here. So let me speak from my position <laughs> of authority. Um, let me tell you how to do it. So um, I just want to mark that caveat up front. Um, and so, you know, take take whatever I say, uh, you know, interpret it with, with, with that in mind. But one thing that I will say is that when I started off this podcast, Cognitive Revolution, that I um, sort of thought about going into it was... The, uh, sorry, I think you're fidgeting with something. That I am know. sorry, I'm fucking with something right next to me. <laughs> okay, that's no, fine. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying not to tap the table because the the um the thing is so sensitive. The um you know to to, like, laptop to or, tapping yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was just uh, yeah. So one of the things that I I thought about a lot when I was starting off uh, cognitive revolution was that I knew it couldn't take up my entire life, right? Like you know some of these podcasts that are very well produced. Um, you know, they take a team of people and, you know, months to, to pull off and that sort of stuff. And it's like, okay, so I know I can't do that. And so I have to do something that respects the amount of time that I have to give to it. And so when I started off, I thought a lot about how I wanted to optimize that. And I guess there's two different stages of that. One was that, uh, and I think, you know, you took advantage of this opportunity, which was that you need, uh, some time to get things going because there's lots of little things. There's like, okay, you know, what technology are we going to use to record stuff? What technology are we going to use to edit stuff? How do you edit stuff? Uh, what mics am I going to use? Well, what's I, what kind of questions should I ask? You know, like, how do I send an email to people? Uh, and what, am I going to have music? Well, where am I going to get that music from? There's got to be a logo. Well, who's going to make the logo, right? And the answer when you're starting off is that you're going to do all these things. And um, By the way, I've been ignoring most of those questions, but... <laughs> <laughs> i i don't have a logo yet i still don't really have a name yeah uh and i, and I, th- I think actually i'm going to go without music altogether uh, okay. i think that's how i'm going to solve that problem yeah but yeah that is certainly one solution to the problem um but so anyway the 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 point generally and even having omitted some of these things you'll appreciate it is um <laughs> there's so many little things to, to start off with and that is really tough to do um when you are engaged in full-time grads grad school stuff and so i did that before i came to grad school i knew this was something that i wanted to do and so the first so the 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 two months before i started sorry how long has your podcast been going for since october of last year so this october will be one year um and uh and you started grad school yeah i started grad school at oxford last fall um, in that october so basically it coincided right with the beginning right so I, i i started off you know a couple months before um grad school i was like i'm gonna do this and i started putting all the stuff together and doing the initial interviews and all that sort of stuff and then uh you know i had a few interviews in the bank and then those dropped basically right on the downbeat of my the beginning of my grad school term and uh so that happened and um that was overall calibrated pretty well because i would not have wanted to be dealing with the sort of auxiliary sort of nitty-gritty stuff like that at the beginning i sort of want the wheel to be turning a little bit uh and using covid downtime i think is a 
a good time. But I, I think that's a barrier to entry for a lot of people, especially if they're doing it on their own, is that the startup costs are relatively high. But if you play your cards right, and this is the second phase of what I was talking about, um, then uh, you it's not it, it's not no work, but um, you you can keep the wheel of the podcast turning with relatively minimal work. And, um, you know, so you've got your emails that you're going to send. And once you've got that dialed in, it still takes some time because you have to write, you know, that personal section, uh, at least in my scheme of things. And that still does take, you know, a decent amount of time, not two hours or whatever, but still it, it, it takes legitimate thought and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you have to prep for the interview. So that's, that's one thing where I really cut down on time is that because my interviews are not necessarily about content and I usually have a vague idea of what the person's content is, um, I don't have to do prep work. I don't have to read the book. I don't have to read three papers. Um, and so I do 30 minutes of prep before I talk to someone. I go to their website. I go to their Twitter. Uh, I go to their CV. I go to their Google Scholar top um, papers and I... Um, have my, uh, I select from my list of sort of, uh, general questions. And, um, then I, uh, you know, I've, here's a handful of ones I think would be interesting to ask them and then, um, come up with some specific questions about their particular trajectory. And so that's 30 minutes of prep. Um, but that's really crucial because I don't have to do, I don't have to spend a bunch of time studying their stuff. And then, you know, the interview takes an hour, um, and then, uh, you know, probably takes about 2x, whatever the length of the interview is, to edit it. And then there is some time dedicated to publishing it. But overall, you know, we're talking on the order of three or four hours to produce an episode. Um, which, if you're doing an episode a week, you can do that. You can do that. Um, it's extra work, but you can do that. Uh, so that that's sort of how I, I manage it. Also, just, um, you know, failing to live up to a number of requirements in my program is another way to find that time. So <laughs> pick whichever yeah, strategy that, that, works for you. Yeah, that is a question I wanted to ask you, like how much prep time you do, because I am for what I do right now. I mean, I'm asking people who've paper, who've stuff I've already read. I'm not, you know, just going out to someone. I have no idea what they're doing. Um, so in the sense, like I have in a way done like hours and hours of prep work but that can often be a while ago. Uh, but yeah, I do still usually read two, three papers now or a book or, or both. Um, so yeah, that is something I've noticed. Like it, <laughs> um, I spend more than half an hour prep. Um, actually, this was the, this is the only interview now, though, for which I didn't like in that sense. Um, well, for example, for the, for the preprint, if we get to it later, I intentionally didn't read that because I thought it would be more interesting to, hear it from you directly um but yeah half half an hour prep would be a dream at this stage um, so that's that's but then again i should also say i'm trying to do one episode every two weeks so i guess that kind of evens out in a way in that i probably spend more like four hours prepping but i don't do an episode that week yeah um, so i mean these are all parameters that you can vary based off how much time you have to give it and what you're going for right so for me um, yeah. I want to talk about the personal stuff and you just, there's, you can't do any research about that ahead of time. Um, so that actually plays into without becoming a minor stalker. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there are ways, but they're, they're not necessarily appropriate for the, the, the situation at hand. Um, 
But so that 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 is a that's not just oh I'm I'm omitting necessary work, um, but that's actually um, you know something. And sure, uh, I, I could dedicate more time to prep, and but it's all about trade offs, right? Is that is that the best use of my time? And and so that's uh, uh, there's there's that sort of thing. And you know, editing you can do uh, editing can take up as much time as you are willing to give it. Um, so that's just something you have to. Say, well, this is. This is, so these are all these are all things that you um, just say. Well, here's what I have to give, and I'm going to make executive decisions about how I'm going to do it, right? And so for me, I want to do one one a week, ideally, um, because you know, as we've talked about, uh, it's it's not everyone's going to listen to every one of your episodes. People are going to come in when they find the person interesting. So to me. Um, it, part of what I want to do with my interview podcast is build up a repository of people that, you know, uh, uh, you know, once people listen to a couple people they really like and they sort of trust me as an interviewer to ask interesting questions and do a decent job, then they'll go through the back catalog and uh, say, oh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll put this one in the queue. And uh, that's kind of how I imagine that, that sort of process going. That's what I did, yeah. Great to know that that's, uh, you know, N of one uh, holds to be true. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, so th- the, the point there is that if I can take, you know, not shortcuts, but if I can, if I can um, optimize things to come out with a, a, a larger N of people that I've interviewed, uh, then that is going to accomplish my goals than more so than if I chose to dedicate, you know, some amount of time to some other part of it. So that's just in my scheme, how I've sort of chosen to allocate time. Yeah, definitely. I think this is a big, I mean, the difference here is just what we're trying to do, right? Um, so, if, I mean, the thing is like you are, I'm assuming, interviewing people who you have, you have read their stuff, just not right now and in preparation for the podcast. It's not like you're, you know, you went to Google Scholar to sociology, looked at who had the most citations exactly. and interviewed Ooh, them. Mark Grandemetter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm assuming that's like, not, that wasn't the guy, Mark Grandemetter. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's hit him up. Sounds no, interesting. No. Mark Grandemetter, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he's famous from The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell, and, um, and uh, also bad ass sociology papers so but um yeah i actually haven't read any of those but i listened to i actually really like that podcast okay. so that's um, one of the ones of yours i like oh that's nice oh, oh sorry <laughs> the ones i listened to yeah. and i liked so like all the others i listened to didn't like um yeah. but actually i wanted to actually this reminds me of something i wanted to mention earlier because you said um one thing that's interesting if you have an interview podcast is when the uh interviewee starts asking questions and I felt that that was slightly the case in your interview with Mark Granovetter because it seemed to me like towards, I don't know, two thirds or something, he seemed, it seemed to me like he was getting interested in you and what you were doing. And then there was a point where it switched and he almost started asking you questions. Oh, yeah. And I, that's why that was one of my favorite interviews is because that happened. And you can't, you, I mean, you can't make the other person do that. You can't like see, see them at the beginning and say, hey, like towards the end, could you ask me some questions about whatever you think might be <laughs> yeah. interesting about me? Um, so it's kind of a moment of magic when it happened, but it really did. And that's why I loved that interview is because I felt like at the end of it, Mark and I were like buddies. Like we, we corresponded since like, you know, I sent him that paper that we were talking about. I read his, Oh yeah. Has he, has he, Oh yeah. He sent me back this nice email of like some, 
uh, things that he liked about. It. He read the thing. He like he I, he was like, here are some <laughs> points on how I think it can be improved. Things that were omitted or arguments I didn't quite buy. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, we made um, uh, some like offhand academic jokes about the um, American studies scholar Perry Miller. He's not well known outside of the humanities all, but if you uh, in in the in like. I don't know what would be the appropriate scope of like an English department. Like Perry Miller is this like behemoth in the field uh, that was famous for um, sort of studying Puritans and that sort of stuff, which is why us social neuroscientists have never heard of him typically is because he's not yeah. germane to our field to say, oh, but we made these really, you know, sort of niche jokes uh, about that. So like that was, okay. but that was the, the point is, is that that was why that uh, interview came off as well as it did, I think is because by the end you not only had learned about Mark Granovetter and his work, but you felt like you got to see a friendship, um, you know, sort of emerge yeah, in that way. And that was a really cool uh, effect uh, that I, I, I thought the interview, you know, maybe captured a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's cool, I guess. Well, I guess for you, it's cool that, that to learn that that came across that way. But for me, it's also cool to kind of hear that um, I didn't just imagine that. I, I did find that really interesting. And I was wondering at the end, like, did I imagine him <laughs> taking interest? But that is that is really cool. One thing I was interested in, especially, is like, you know, talking about trying to combine these different things. So, I mean, not only are you doing a PhD in podcasting, but you're also, as far as I can tell, writing. Um, I didn't look at when you published your essays and that kind of stuff. But it seems like you're doing this still, right? And there was this one essay of yours um, that I read. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, but where you like outline your schedule, like the, and the difference between planned and actual or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I was like, what well, the first thing that I found interesting about that is that it seems like you spent, I think you say like your most, your, your most productive hours are like in the morning. And then you, what also just surprised me is that you're spending none of that on your PhD, at least in that outline. It was something like writing, podcast, writing, writing, writing or something like that. And I was just curious, <laughs> is that, uh, <laughs> Is that like that just surprised me because for me, the part that the PhD kind of work comes first and then the other stuff is secondary. Um, and, uh, That's a very I mean, astute observation. Um, <laughs> look, OK, so there's a couple there's a couple different things at play here. So one, I mean, empirically speaking, you know, that's why the podcast has gotten you know the traction that it has. And there are a steady stream of essays coming out. And their uh, and my academic work is still in preprint and everything. So I mean, you get returns on the things that you put your most productive time into, and um, ultimately, so so okay. So so here's here's the the thing that here's the additional information you don't have yet, which is that that is now flipped. And one of the reasons why Cognitive Revolution hasn't come out recently and um, uh, all that sort of stuff is that I. Uh, Podcasting's going well enough. Writing's going well enough. Um, I've hit the goals that I wanted to have on that um, for for this year, and um, I I hit the marks that I that I want, and um, I'm really happy about that. And, but those are sort of in motion now, and so um, uh, those need to take less priority. And uh, so I have flipped that now to where science is coming first. I need to kick some serious ass on my PhD in the near future and get uh, back on track. So that is your, your perception is correct there. And there's that additional piece of information um, that, uh, um, you know, is 
the sort of antidote to, to to the issue you you identify. But um, the other thing is is that you know at the end of the day, um, it's really hard to get an academic job, especially an academic job that one might want. Uh, and so, um, I uh, I will try my damnedest to do good academic research and to find a postdoc and eventually pa- faculty position that suits me. But I'm not married to it. And um, uh, I do like research. I do like ideas. Um, and I, um, you know, we'll talk about this, you know, some of the stuff that I'm working on. I'm hoping that, you know, people find it worthwhile. And if they do, then maybe there's, there's a, a future there. But at the end of the day, I know for sure that I want to have some sort of public facing, uh, you know, aspect of my career, whether it's podcasting and writing and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I described my podcast as an exercise in platform building. And that uh, sort of is in service of this. It's not just a side project that I I think would be cool, even though, you know, in some sense, that's what it is. But it's also a, um, it is is, uh, an early step toward developing this sort of thing into a career, right? And um, I think podcasts are an excellent way to build a connection with, um, uh, you know, not necessarily followers or whatever you want to call them, but a group of people who are interested in you and your work and the way that you think and the way you interact with people in the world. And um, podcasts have uh, a relatively low barrier to entry for listeners like that with a relatively high uh, sort of return on their investment in you because they you know, they hear your voice. It's very personal. You're talking to someone they care about. Um, you can, cause that's, that's the other thing from a marketing perspective is that in an interview podcast, I get to temporarily take on someone else's audience as my own. Right. So there's huge variation between whether or not you have Paul Bloom on the podcast versus someone who, um, you know, people don't know as much. And people are always going to listen to the Steven Pinker and Paul Bloom ones more so. Or, you know, if you have someone people love, like Sandra Vanderlinden or something like that, um, that's going to draw a bunch of people. But at the end of the day, Susan Fisk, even though she's like the greatest person in the history of the world, um, she's not a public figure in the same way. Um, uh, so super interesting interview. Awesome. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, th- anyway, the point is, is that different people bring different audiences and you get to sort of co-opt it temporarily and draw in a small chunk of those people to be interested in your own stuff. Potentially they'll just keep an eye on whether or not you have future interesting people or look at the back catalog, like we were saying. So anyway, um, this podcast and um, my writing and what I want to do is done with an an eye towards building a career out of it. Um, Either its own sort of, you know, deal or as uh, an add-on to my academic career, it's sort of a matter of which one goes well, you know, where the, because, you know, part of it's always going to be about, you know, do you get a break somewhere? Um, part of it's going to be about how much work are you putting into it and that sort of stuff. And um, so I know this is something that I want to do. It's something that I want to have as an aspect of my career. And this is a sort of introduction for me to, to do it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what what I found interesting is that I think for the third or fourth time, you've almost answered a question I was going to ask. <laughs> like I had like one question, and then I had one building up to that, and you basically went there anyway. So one question I wanted to ask was like, uh, to what extent, or like what you see 
after once you're finished with your PhD, like what you want to do. Because I feel like I I basically still assume I'm going to do a postdoc and these kind of things. But I am I do notice like how should we say? Um you know, you can do a lot of research without being employed at a university. Um at least I mean you probably need some sort of collaborator if you want I mean if you want to do neuroimaging or something like that. Um but I've I'm also working on some stuff that's fairly theoretical or that can be done for not that much money. So I do wonder sometimes like whether it might, you know, I'd, I'd take like a part-time postdoc or something like that. Just get rid of like all the administrative stuff that usually comes with being academic. But it's, yeah. You know, the whole academia thing, being a professor, being uh, you know, a postdoc, gosh, like there is so much there's so much bad stuff involved in this. And, you know, uh, I almost feel like people like us, we get so into it and so on this track and, uh, you know, we just love the concepts and, and what we're doing and that sort of stuff. Uh, the, and we're told like, it's, it's very, it's also very appealing, right? There's this very concrete path. So it's like, okay, you do undergraduate, yeah. you do your master's, you do your PhD, you get a postdoc for three years, you become, um, uh, an assistant professor, you become uh, an associate professor and then you get tenure or, you know, you get tenure and after assistant professor. Uh, but the point is, is that there's a very, you know, linear thing here are the signposts. And that's very tempting because most things in life don't give you something, um, something that explicit about that. And so I feel like, especially not get, writing, especially not writing, especially not, you know, Oh, so, you know, like, so what's this alternative career that I'm working on? It's like, Oh, you're going to be a, <laughs> but you know, you're going to be a, a public intellectual. Like, what do you? What is, what is yeah. that even? What is it? You know, a writer. It's like, oh no, it's like Ernest Hemingway's right. I'm not a writer. Um, but, um, but no. The point is, is that yeah. So I think pursue the academic stuff. Um, uh, do it. But at the end of the day, don't forget that you're doing it because you love the research and the ideas. Um, but if you get married to that and say like, oh, I won't be happy doing anything else fuck, you're putting yourself in a tough situation because there's a lot that can go wrong there. And then you are married to a very, very suboptimal. Because look, at the end of the day, it is a lot better to be outside of academia. Um, like just stri strictly speaking in terms of personal happiness, you can choose the city that you want to live in and you can go with your partner if, if, if you know, she gets a cool job somewhere else. You... Um, you get paid an actual amount of money. Like other people get like, they get like, not just like, oh, I can eat this week and pay for rent, but it's like, they can actually do stuff. Um, uh, you, you know, you, you like there are interesting problems outside of academic problems. They get to do cool stuff and, it, it, and more people get to engage with it. So there's all these things. It's like, oh, outside world actually is a really good thing. And sometimes we forget about it. But anyway, the point that I'm trying to make for me is that the way I think about it is like, yes, I'm going to give up my all. I still think it'd be really cool to do academia, but I'm not going to throw all of my eggs into that one basket. I'm going to have other stuff going on. And I know I'm going to do this in some form later on. Uh, if it turns out well, maybe it can be its own thing. But certainly what I'm doing now is an initial investment in a longer term vision. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, shall we then talk about your podcast now, your other podcast? So, um, yeah. So um, speaking of uh, not making sufficient progress on my PhD <laughs> research, um, 
over uh, the COVID period, I actually have been developing a new podcast. And this one is not an interview-based podcast. It's more of a, a story episodic podcast where it comes out. There'll be a, a, um, an initial installment of, I think, 10 episodes in a first season. And so it'll be, you know, those 10 episodes will exist and second season will come at some point in the future if I ever get around to it. Um, but um, but it's not planned to be, uh, you know, a it's year. It's not going to be every, it's not going to be at some set timeline where, you know, the, the seasons are going to come out at a certain point or it's, it's not like I'm going to do it like Cognitive Revolution where the ideal is to have a new episode every week. Um, and so, yeah, the podcast is, it's actually a travel podcast. And so um, the, the basic setup is that it's not necessarily discussing ideas, but it's basically travelogue stories about places um, that I've seen and places that I've been and um, trying to recreate the images and feelings and all that sort of stuff of, of those adventures. And sort of the, I don't know, the, the kind of the conceptual motivation for it is that so you know, from Cognitive Revolution, clearly I'm interested in this strain of person that's uh, the, the intellectual or the scientist or the writer or whatever you want to call it. Clearly that's, that's, that's something that I'm very interested in and want to dig into. But there's another kind of person that I haven't, that's uh, also of real interest to me, that's not so much in that same kind of uh, sphere, and it's the traveler. So the, the people who go out there into a foreign place or something they're unfamiliar with, and they come back and they try and relate what they saw, make sense of it, and give everyone else an idea of what's going on out there in the world. And this is something um, that I've been drawn to in a lot of different formats. Um, one of my favorite writers of all time is Bill Bryson. And, um, you know, he's written some famous travel books uh, about Europe, small town America, England, Australia. Um, and I really like those books and, and particularly the audiobook versions of it because there's this very intimate thing uh, in an audiobook or in a podcast, which is that someone else gets to take over your um, internal monologue, right? Like that's that's what's happening when you listen to someone else's voice like that in your headphones or whatever. And that's an extremely intimate thing. Someone else gets to take over your internal monologue. And so with him describing these vivid, vivid images of things that he's seen and, and doing it in this sort of stylized way, um, those have been some of my favorite audio experiences, especially in moments where I'm feeling trapped in a place, like during winter in Boston, good God. Um, or, um, uh, you know, just when, when I, when I, uh, you know, feeling like I want to get out there and, and see it again. And so I've been working on this, you know, travel writing vaguely in that vein of things for a number of years now, but it's, it's very hard to find a, a, an outlet for it, a place to publish it, especially the longer form stuff. And, um, so basically I took, um, downtime during COVID to revisit some of those essays that I had previously written, write a couple more of them and sort of put them into something that basically resembles an audiobook format. It's about, it's basically an audiobook broken up into, um, podcast episodes. And so, um, I talk about, uh, you know, just different places They include Moscow, uh, St. Petersburg, Istanbul, uh, South Africa, a small country in the middle of South Africa called Lesotho, and then some places in Asia, including Hong Kong and Myanmar. And so each of them... So just to interrupt briefly, each yeah. episode is about one place? Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, the other thing is, it's an essay where you read it, or is there also like some sort of audio, like some sort of sound effects or music or whatever? Yeah, it's have, like an idea of what to imagine what it's going to be like. You know, it's it's basically that red essay type of thing, and um, you know, uh, at a first approximation, whatever an author does when they read their audiobook, that's kind of what I'm going for. And I've always liked audiobooks that are read by the author. Um, it just gives you that added layer of intimacy. And yeah, in the best case scenario, it would, you know, sort of um, reach that, uh, you know, level of, of sort of co-opting one's internal monologue. And, you know, uh, I'll let everyone decide, you know, it, how they, whether or not they feel it's attained this, but the um, the goal is is for, for it to be light and, and funny and engaging and to really make you feel like you are, are going to one of these uh, places and, and, and seeing these things. So it's supposed to be vivid. And there's some drawing in of uh, ideas and, and that sort of stuff and, and concepts and, and um, you know, uh, sort of that, the intellectual edge and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, a lot of it's really about trying to hit that note of, of, of just bringing in these vivid images and um, a, a really engaging narrative like that. Uh, how long are these going to be the episodes? Is it? Oh, they range. However much interesting thing, however much interesting content I have to say about a place, but they range from about twenty five minutes to to forty five minutes. Um, so pretty long then. Okay. Yeah, so they take a long time to for, for an essay. That. It's pretty long, right? And and honestly, reading them is a pain in the ass because you have <laughs> to get everything just right, and there's all these and these are like, oh my gosh, it's this whole thing. So it's like, yeah, it's a, it's it's. It's less work than you might think because I had a ton of the content written already and just sort of had to edit it. Um, so that was nice. But like, honestly, even just recording, it still takes a, a ton of time. And um, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to wrap that uh, up. And, um, and those are going to drop starting September 3rd. Uh, but I, I am really excited about that because to sort of tie it back into my other interests is that so the connection between the scholar the intellectual the thinker and the traveler is of course the anthropologist, right? And um, this is uh, sort of a not so secret obsession of mine, our anthropologists, especially the sort of old school ones who would go to like, you know, basically the setup is like, I'm going to pick the people who are most different from me on earth. And I'm going to go try and make sense of what they're up to. And I'm going to go to some remote Island or, or this or that and live in the jungle for a year. Right. So that sort of, pre let's say 1970s anthropology um i love those um and uh and so so yeah there's there's two different things here one is that in the long term i have this i, I would really love to do this is um to combine the sort of exposition of ideas that people like you and i are interested in as you know science writers or whatever you want to call it and uh, these travelogues and do it in a fresh way. It's sort of like, you know, if you think back to 1999, 2000, when Malcolm Gladwell came out with The Tipping Point, and he had this really novel way of interlacing academic findings with narratives. Um, and it turned out to be a really, really good formula because it's the one that pretty much everyone copies nowadays. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I, Malcolm Gladwell is a narrative genius, and I'm certainly not that. 
but in in the same way of, of trying to come up with a new way of interlacing um, experience with ideas, which I think is is this really um, you know high level of uh, ability to encapsulate something about the world is if, if you can capture both the theoretical um, sort of abstract things about it as well as the intimacy of, of what it's like to experience it. That's sort of this this big goal of, of to me what I love about writing and, and ideas and all that sort of stuff and want to capture my own work. And so in, in the long term, I would love to have these two um, you know strains connect from the, the sort of science cl- the classic science exposition and talking about ideas. Uh, to uh, intersect with these these travelogues. So that's one strain of it. The second thing, which is, I think, what we were going to talk about next, was um, the uh, work that I've been doing in psychology is based around this idea of the intuitive anthropologist. Right? Actually, can so, I ask one quick question before that? Okay. Um, have you actually done anthropological fieldwork or something? No, I haven't done any anthropological. Uh, is that something you? I mean, it sounds like you're really interested in it, and like you know, as a, I don't know, like an internship or something. Oh God! So like here's here's placement. the whole thing. So this this oh my God! I I there's there's I have way too many opinions on this sort of thing. But anthropology in so here's here's a question worth asking. If you're so obsessed with anthropology, why don't you go get your degree in anthropology instead of psychology? Uh, and I think that's. Uh, a really valid question. And the answer to it is that anthropology as a field is kind of fucked up. Um, and that's coming from someone whose you know, field is in the midst of replication <laughs> crisis, generalized civility crisis, and every other potential crisis that one could conceivably have in psychology. Um, but just at the end of the day, um, psychology still purports to be a science. And I think that that's a good thing. And anthropology has gotten itself really stuck in the mud of the really difficult things about humanities, right? And so the the answer to to the question of why I don't want to do anthropology is also the answer to the question of why that pre-1970s anthropology doesn't really exist anymore. So why can't um, urban white guys go off to, you know, uh, remote tribes of brown-skinned people and come back and, and talk about it? And the answer to that question one broad stroke of it is that you you have to start to ask so what is what does it mean to successfully do that sort of thing uh and in the way that it's purported to to do to what level is that project even possible um and that turns out to be a really really difficult question to ask to answer and um the way anthropology has elected to answer it for the most part as a field cultural anthropology at least is through you know, basically the the sort of schemas of the the humanities and um, uh, you know sort of critical theory and all of these sort of uh, tricky things, which whether or not they are um, you know sort of useful, setting aside the question of, of whether or not you know whatever one thinks of them more generally, they make it really really difficult to answer this question because it turns out that it's really difficult to say in what way an outsider can go into somewhere and say, these are what these people are doing. And uh, there's all sorts of problematic things about it. Like it's really a vestige of colonialism and that sort of stuff. And so look, anthropology, as it's practiced in anthropology departments, I don't want to do that. Um, So that's one reason. The second reason, which I'll keep shorter, is um, that to me, one of the things that I'm always trying to do 
uh, is be somewhere that I don't belong, right? So I want to be somewhere where the way that I think about something is different from the way that people typically think about something. So um, to me, there's power in saying, look, psychology, cognitive science, that's my field of training. That's where I, those are the people that I, you know, most am, am a part of, but I'm going to go and try and get this completely separate um, understanding of the way this other field thinks and take some of their ideas and bring them back here and have that be at odds with the sort of mainstream thinking. So that that's, that's basically sort of, what an anthropologist does, right? <laughs> you go for a different field and bring stuff back to your that's, that's really the answer to the questions is the meta anthropology going on here, um, which is that every, you know, experience is an opportunity to be an anthropologist and to, um, to sort of put yourself in a position that is not the one that would be most comfortable for you and to use that as um, a lens of, uh, you know, understanding that. And that that's in a much more, of course, informal way than what the formal anthropologist who has a title of professor of anthropology does in, you know, in, in her capacity as, a, as an academic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then I think that is the link then to the preprint. Um, so I think this is one reason I want to talk about this because it seemed to me that so you... I heard you talk about it in the podcast with Mark Granovetter. Um And there were some things that I thought where I didn't agree with you. So I thought that could be kind of interesting. I, I didn't write them down. I don't have a list. But if you could, um, I think if you just explain kind of what you want to do uh, in your preprint, then I think we can have an interesting conversation about that. So or yeah, this topic. The, so the, the title of the preprint is The Intuitive Anthropologist why intuitive psychology falls short for understanding those who are different. And the basic idea is that, so for a long time now in psychology, going back to, I think, 1977 with Lee Ross, you have this notion of the intuitive psychologist. And this says that when one human being is trying to understand the mind of another human being, essentially what they're doing is what... um, professional psychologists do formally in an informal way, right? So they're, they're trying to approximate what, whatever it is that um, professional psychologists are doing. And then this is how they're gaining their insight into uh, the way other humans behave. And so from this spring, uh, all of the sort of touchstones of this sort of social psychology, like theory of mind and mentalizing and uh, empathy, cognitive empathy, emotional empathy, whatever your favorite label for this general phenomenon is. And um, the sort of observation that I want to make in that paper at a very high level is that, okay, so you have intuitive psychology. That's a really useful concept. However, um, psychology is only one of the fields which is um, sort of invested in the enterprise of understanding human behavior. It also happens to be the one that we psychologists are involved in. And so isn't it, doesn't it seem likely that maybe there's a little bit of chauvinism going on here saying, oh, you know what we do? Well, that's what everyone else is doing and just sort of leaving it at that. Um, and of course, there's other um, kinds of intuitive theories, as they're called in the field. So you have intuitive physics, you have intuitive biology, you know, like whatever these sort of folk theories about how the world works. But... Um, there's not as much work done on, you know, sort of bringing in 
something uh, like the perspectives from the other social sciences, so like sociology or anthropology. And um, the reason one uh, might think that we're leaving something on the table here, looking at what anthropology or sociology does, is that so if you think about the setup of anthropology, like we we're talking about, is that so you have one person, the anthropologist, and you have another person um, who is, you know, whatever, uh, the, the, the person who's to be studied. And uh, the anthropologist tries to find, select that other person such that they are as different from them as possible, and then go in there and be like, how do I, what do I do to try and, this person's so different than me, how do I try and um, make sense of that, right? And um, if, you, if you look at anthropology, as difficult as, as, as we talked about, as difficult as that problem is, that is a very different kind of problem than what psychology is suited to, to do. So what psychology has, is suited to do and what it's always held as a sort of philosophical point is um, psychology is looking for what's common between everyone. It's saying, look, what is, the, what is the invariant mind that we all share? How do neurons work? Because presumably that's the same way among everyone. How do the faculties of long-term and short-term memory work? Presumably that's the same among everyone. And you want to build out this sort of core deal of cognition that like, you could go and find those things on every person on the planet. Uh, and so there is this really deep philosophical difference uh, where psychology is looking for things that are common between people. And anthropology is looking for things that are different between people. And um, I think when we uh, rely almost exclusively on uh, the notion of intuitive psychology, we are uh, find, we're basically going to find the same issues in our understanding of the way other people understand each other. We're going to um, understand a lot about how they understand what's common between the minds of everyone else. So for instance, if I go look at the water bottle on my desk, um, then you uh, think, uh, oh, well, he's looking at something off the thing. I wonder what, you know, right? So you, everyone looks at things and you can look at people's eyes. And so a lot of theory of mind work is like, oh, if this person looks over here, what do they know about the world? Um, that's the like Sally Ann task where you have boxes and dolls and they're switching and who knows what and where and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, the point of anthropology is, um, uh, like I said, to look at differences. And uh, it turns out that the methodology for doing this is very different than... Um, so can I interrupt you on the course. point of anthropology there? So what... You said two slight difference. You said the point of anthropology is slightly differently there, if I remember correctly. Once you said is anthropologists try to uh, find differences between people, something like that. Oh, I can't, okay, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it. Anyway, my, my question is kind of: I always, I don't know much about anthropology, um, so this might be a, just a misunderstanding on my part. But it always seemed to me that they were trying to find people who were different for them to find the commonalities. Is is that not what they're trying to do? Like they say, okay, we're going to go to uh, some tribe in the Amazonas who, you know, share none of the structures we have, and then we're we're going to see and like how are they similar to us to find the universal features in humans? But yeah, so that's that a was really good my question. Assumption. That's a really good question, and um, you know, the answer to some extent is yeah, they are trying to do both. Um, and um, I think the, the sort of easiest dichotomy is this, is that theory tends to focus on things that are invariant among people. 
So for example, a famous um, uh, anthropological theory would be structuralism or functionalism. Structuralism being that all cultures are made out of the same building blocks and you just rearrange you know, those building blocks in different ways. And functionalism being that every you know, sort of ritual or thing that takes place in a culture uh, is meant to serve some sort of function or other. It accomplishes some sort of goal. Um, and so, you know, you would look at that and you'd say, okay, well, yeah, all, if you're a functionalist, then all cultural happenings serve some sort of, um, you know, function and it's your job to find out what they are, but that would be something that, that is the same amongst everyone. Uh, but then an example contrary to that is that the sort of primary deliverable that an anthropologist, uh, you know, sort of comes up with their, their academic papers are called ethnographies. And this is a description of, um, so I went there, it always starts off with your um, describing their kin relations. So in the West, we have, you know, fathers, uh, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, sons, daughters, uncles. Uh, uh, and then, so you, but in some cultures, everyone who is X counts as your uncle, or there's some, you know, second cousin twice removed is a special thing. So they start off, and so that's specific to that culture. So ethnographies tend to be about the specific things that are, these are the peculiar things this person does. Of course, that links back to sort of the problematicity of anthropology, which is that you're exoticizing brown people, which is not a great look for white people um, in the... But are you? Well, it, so this is it why anthropologists... like you just... I mean, you uh, like uh, to put it the other way around, if they were to come to western europe and find the differences i mean that would be the same thing right i'm glad you asked that question and the re and the answer to that question is um that this is why anthropologists don't do very much interesting stuff in my opinion is because this dialogue uh they've been stuck in this dialogue for a very long time it's like but is that a problem okay. well yeah but here's and like in innocent so there's this there's a lot of there's a lot of that which makes it very hard to proceed on that anyway that's just my sort of opinion um, so I, I want to set, set that question aside because I think if we dig into yeah, that, it's a separate question. Okay. It is, it's a really, let's just suffice to say, it's a really tricky issue. It's a really tricky issue. Um, and, uh, it's not at all easy to disentangle and, um, uh, there, you know, there's, there's a lot to consider there. Um, but okay. anyway, um, so, so yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, so, okay. So anthropologists. Let, let, let's be honest here. I am making just egregious simplifications about psychology, intuitive psychology, anthropology, intuitive anthropology. So there's always going to be some question in the form of like, oh, but you know, if you were to get more specific. So yeah, sure. Those are all fair play and you should ask them, but I'm making dramatic oversimplifications. Uh, but I think they give us a concept, a useful conceptual starting point. And so the, so the point that I want to make is if Okay, so let's let's take this idea seriously. That we should be looking at the notion of intuitive anthropology in the same way that we look at the notion of intuitive psychology. What what would we what would we start to look at? And so it turns out, in my reading of anthropology, as a non-anthropologist, is that um, when you really get serious about looking at the methods of anthropological fieldwork, which were developed um, mainly in 1922 in um, a a text by uh, an anthropologist named Bronisław Malinowski, uh, Argonauts of the Western Pacific. And he basically invented modern anthropological fieldwork. And there's not that many methodological updates that have been done since then. 
Because at the end of the day, um, when you go somewhere and try to understand someone else, there isn't an algorithm or an experimental protocol that's going to get you from a place of not knowing anything to knowing a you know critical mass of stuff. Um, it's a much more freeform uh, problem. And so the question of whether or not you do a decent ethnography or are successful in your anthropological um, uh, investigations is not so much about some sort of fancy, fancy mental gymnastics about empathically putting yourself into that other person's shoes. Um, it's about, are you putting in the effort to do the hard work of spending every second you can with these people trying to learn their language, trying to be with them in every possible situation, trying to experience some of the things that they experience, trying to ask them about um, what you're missing when you're not experiencing those things. The, the basic idea of Malinowski's uh, methodology is called participant observation. You participate and you observe. Um, and the whole point being that it's not about the mental gymnastics, which is what theory of mind is. It's some algorithm for saying, how do you get into the mind of another person? How do you successfully negotiate all that sort of stuff? But it's actually about motivation. Are you willing to get your ass into the field, into a tent, under the mosquito net, and sit there for a year until you can speak the language and uh, understand this stuff? And uh, the point is, is that when you look at divisions in the world today, like between Republicans and Democrats in the U.S., um, there's a complete lack of that connection of one camp willing to truly engage in that um, in that way and say, look, I'm going to do the hard work of existing with these people who I don't get at all. I think they're ridiculous. I think they're totally off their rocker. Um, and I'm going to go, you know, figure out what they're, what they're thinking about and how they really live and where these ideas are coming from. Um, and so that's sort of the full circle thing is that I think, um, for all its faults, anthropology shows us that it's a question not of you know, sort of an intellectual edge, but it's whoever goes out there and spends the time with them. And when we look at um, the inability of people to make sense of minds outside of their own social group today, to the extent to which you think that's happening, um, it's it's for that same 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 sort of lack. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I'm just not entirely sure. So. What are you proposing then for, for psychologists to do, or is that not part of the paper? God, it seemed to I me saying? like you had like a suggestion, like uh, you know, like we're lacking this thing that they're doing, and we should do. So one thing, this. one thing is that, um, I mean, in, in sort of just uh, conceptual strokes, we need to distinguish between when you're doing um, some version of intuitive psychology for an in-group versus out-group member. So most um, theory of mind studies don't look at this sort of thing um, because, you know, if, you're, if you've got something like, like the majority of theory of mind tasks are about this really minimal version of theory of mind, where it's like you either understand that this other agent has mental states and those mental states are different from yours or, they, or, the, or you don't get that, right? And so it's used as a sort of diagnostic tool for aut autism spectrum uh, deals or for infants, and uh, a lot of theory of mind stuff uh, is sort of uh, co-opted from that and then used on healthy adults and on all, all this sort of stuff. And so uh, we need more robust theory of mind paradigms uh, to 
to capture those gradations of things. And because these are these are beliefs about these are worldview beliefs. These aren't beliefs about oh, is the doll in box A or box B? These are uh, much more sophisticated beliefs that are legitimately harder to capture in ex- in experimental paradigms. Um, but uh, because we focused in on the experimental paradigms and not as much the real world situations, we've missed this key part of what's happening. Um, so dimensionality is one thing. So uh, all pretty much all theory of mind paradigms are one dimensional. Either the mental state is true or false or A or B or whatever it is. And um, uh, crucial mental states that are going to be different between different members of different social groups are multidimensional. Uh, and so they'll, you know, whatever, whatever you're, you're talking about, they're just going to be more, basically more complicated, but having some sort of experimental paradigm where there's, there's more happening like that. Um, but then my favorite concept that I want to bring in from anthropology to psychology is this concept of something called thick description by the anthropologist Clifford Geertz. And, um, so this is actually a super famous concept. So if you compare it to so prospect theory, potentially the most famous theory in sort of, you know, uh, behavioral economics or, you know, this decision psychology, whatever you want to call it, it has like 60,000 citations. Um, my numbers might be slightly out of date, but it's, you know, 60, 70, a lot of, lot of citations. Nobel Prize winning. Thick description by Clifford Geertz, that, the, the book that it's from, has 100,000 uh, citations. Uh, it is strictly speaking, uh, from that measurement, uh, a more influential theory yet you'll never hear it once in a psychology uh, um, department. It's basically a theory about what it means to understand other people. And it has to do with, uh, you know, sort of getting into, um, you know, it's, 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 it's this whole, it's this whole thing. And we can, we can talk about it if you want, but basically bringing that theory into the psychological parlance would be something I'd like to do. Yeah, that was that was one part that really that that kind of caught my attention in your conversation with Mark Granovet is that I'd never heard of the guy, and um, although funnily enough, then two days later, I am reading uh, one of the books I'm reading is it's called The Utopia of Rules by um, David Graeber. Um, he wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, which was fairly famous uh, a few years ago. Anyway, he. Uh, I'd never heard of that name. And then, of course, two days after hearing you talk about uh, Clifford Geertz with um, Mark Granovetta, I read that name in one of his books. Now that you know um, that name, you're going to see it lots of places because it's really hard to touch any sort of anthropological work. And, you know, um, David Graeber is an anthropologist without touching on Geertz um, or like, you know, the conversation. I think my most recent cognitive resolution podcast is with Daniel Everett, um, who's a really awesome uh, anthropological linguist, amazing, amazing guy. Like, lit- oh my god! Like, literally the closest thing we have to Indiana Jones. Um, but his, I mean, the epigraph to his book is a Clifford Geertz, Clifford Geertz quote. Um, so, it's this, re- and Clifford Geertz was like the greatest academic writer of all time. Um, so he's okay. he's very much my hero. So you so you'd recommend that book. I'd recommend the interpretation of cultures, which is the um, his most famous collection of essays. The first one there lays out his theory of thick description. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's 
I, I don't think there's a guarantee that you're going to, like anyone could pick it up and be like, oh, wow, this has answered all the questions. I don't know. I don't know what your average neuropsychologist, you know, whatever would, would make of it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, if you dig into it, there's a lot there. And um, then the last essay in that collection um, notes on the Balinese cockfight. That, oh my God, now that's something, oh. That is, oh, it's so good. Okay, I have to buy that. But could you then briefly outline thick description and what, like, what, what are we lacking that can at least partially be solved with that uh, process or what, whatever yeah. it is? So I think to me, thick description is most easily illustrated by starting with uh, what would be a thin description. So a, a thin description of anything of a culture of a person of a place of this or that would be basically a single dimensional data point right so if you said i'm going to describe the united states of america and then you showed me a, a graph that was you know uh uh um like political views as a function of population density that would be an interesting graph Because you would see, uh, oh, well, you know, these liberal, you know, ideologies tend to, you know, be in high population density areas. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, that's, there's lots to unpack there. But if you just left it that and said, that's the United States, that's a thin description. And so what a thick description seeks to do is say, well, how do you describe as much of it as possible? How do you really get into, um, uh, you know, as close to describing the multidimensional reality as possible. Um, and so that's why it's hard to give a, a positive definition of it is because it encompasses potentially everything. But the, the, the sort of point of it is that you have, um, uh, you have to have an experiential component of like, it can't just be here are all the empirical facts about it. Um, because then you are missing out on some key aspect of it, which is some semblance of what it's actually like to, to be there or to, to experience it. And since some, 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 some kind of thing. So that's, that kind of ties back to what I was saying in, you know, my goal as a writer and what I love is in writing is when someone can capture both the theoretical, here's how to think about something abstractly, as well as here was the experience of what it was like to be there. Um, and so thick description in it's sort of apotheosis is when you can capture both a theory about what is transpiring as well as the ph phenomenological experience of what it's like to be there while it's transpiring. So it's tough that to wrap your mind around. That would explain, though, why this isn't adopted or even known in psychology and neuroscience, right? Because that's by definition subjective, right? Yeah, so it's, it's tough to... Um, It's tough to incorporate. It's, I mean, it's, it's definitely not an easy slot in. It's like, oh, you know, you have your Bayesian prior. Well, if you just take out the Bayesian prior and put in thick description, <laughs> then you're good to go. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're so you're proposing just like this is something we're missing and we should be paying more attention to rather than and here's how we do it. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to have to wait uh, to figure out exactly how we should do it before getting the idea out there. Um, so I think I think you know, what I've described is worth saying personally. Everyone can obviously make their own judgment about that. But I I think those things are, are worth pointing out. And I think it's going to be a long project of reorienting it. 
Um, and so I would certainly like to contribute to that effort. Um, but I think the delta between um, sort of identifying this project and saying, oh, look, I found the theory of mind paradigm that describes every discrepancy that I have uh, pointed out. Uh, yeah, I've still got a few years left in the PhD. So that's what I'm going to spend that time <laughs> working on, you know. Okay. That, that was actually what, something I wanted to ask. Is that something because is that something that's actually part of your main PhD work or is that something kind of in addition to, because it wasn't quite clear to me whether, I mean, you know, usually in your PhD work, you have like an experiment you do with your supervisor or something, right? Um, whilst this is more like a perspective thing. So I was curious, is that this, something you're actually, this actually like works out on? nicely for my PhD stuff. Cause one of my advisors, the one that I've been working with primarily for the last year, his name is Matthew apps. He just moved from Oxford to Birmingham. Um, he works on motivation basically. And he is a phenomenal experimentalist, one of the best experimentalists I've ever um, uh, met. And so I am currently working on um, intergroup versions of his uh, previous motivation work. So uh, the general question he looks at is, so, okay, we all know that people are motivated to earn rewards for themselves. What about if you have a setup where you can earn rewards for another person and put an effort to do that? Um, how do people negotiate those sort of pro-social effort situations? Really interesting question. Hasn't yet looked at it. And well, what if that person is an in-group member versus an out-group member? That's what I'm currently working on. And then you can see that there's sort of a bridge from that to like, okay, I can earn rewards for that out-group member versus I can do the effort to understand that thing. So that's that's the first extension is intergroup. The second extension will be, um, you know, uh, whatever... Uh, you know, how, how do you generalize that to perspective taking, intuitive psychology, theory of mind, cognitive empathy, et cetera. And that's my second PhD supervisor, Jeff Berg, currently at Oxford. Um, and I'm going to be working with him more over the next couple of years. And um, so that's that's where hopefully that stuff's going to start to develop. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like something that's, I mean, in a sense, it sounds like you're trying to, I mean, it's it's kind of a paradigm shift, right, in a way, to say, okay, we have like this way of doing it, but we really need to like change gears or add something. I mean, it sounds like this is, I mean, that's not that's not a trivial problem <laughs> to be working on. <laughs> um, I mean, that's I will good. certainly attempt to shift the paradigm. Whether or not the paradigm gets shifted is up to everyone else. Um but yeah, this seems to me like the like a thing that if I if you asked me, so Cody, what do you think most psychologists are wrong about, or what do they insufficiently understand in general or as a field, or what's what do you sort of what's the conventional wisdom that is most wrong or most incomplete? That's the answer that I give. So in that sense, yeah, the topic that I've selected to work on and live or die by in my academic career is one that I think um uh, answers that question but like we've talked about um the sort of issue is like okay so you have thick description that's great i'm glad it works for you know sociologists and david graber and everyone uh but can you successfully incorporate that into um you know the notions that we have in psychology and cognitive science i don't know i'm gonna give it a shot and i'll let you know uh in a little while uh whether or not anyone buys that that sounds great <laughs> Yeah, I'll definitely check out your preprint for more detail then. 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like I, always, I, I sometimes wonder, like whether you know, like thinking about my own PhD work. Like I feel like that would be so cool to have something like this is something that people are lacking, and I'm trying to. Like I feel like I'm still like looking for a problem in that sense, like something where I feel like this is something that really needs to be addressed. Um, so in some sense, I'm, I'm quite envious of you having a, a a clear direction in that sense. Yeah. So how do you feel like you begin to think about that, or what do you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. How does that, how does that play out to... for you? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's. I mean, so I. I mean, I had. So I'm working a lot on cooperation, um, and so in incorporating game theory and these kind of things. And uh, so I had done a bit before starting my PhD on this, but not that much. Uh, so I pretty much came to this completely new, and. I guess like I'm still just trying to figure out the field in a sense. I mean, in a sense, there's also several fields because you have evolution biologists doing it, economists, psychologists, and all sorts of people working on this. Um, I don't know. Right, right now, it's a kind of like, I guess, finding smaller problems and thinking like, hey, shouldn't that be something? And then trying to work on that. Um, yeah, I should say, it's just like the kind of thing that I keep having in the back of my mind. Like the, uh, I'd like to have like a kind of grander, not not grand in that sense, but like just bigger, um, a big yeah, a bigger problem than I'm working in that sense. I mean, rather than having like an existing framework and like adding to it a bit. Uh, you know, I guess far be it for me to to um, you know suggest what one should do for one's PhD, since I have not successfully completed my PhD yet. But um, certainly, my my strategy on that is to steal ideas from other fields, right? The outsider perspective, like we were, we were talking on, um, because I mean, cooperation, that's like the best, that is, that's like the single biggest, like social phenomenon in the history of social phenomena. And everyone knows it. And, um, uh, economists know it, uh, sociologists know it, uh, psychologists know it, evolutionary biologists know it. Um, and so to me, the question would be, who, you know, uh, who, who has looked at this, but the core group, of people, we all know evolutionary biology and economics and, you know, game theory and this and that, those, those, everyone, all of those have studied it. Who has a perspective on it that um, is not yet part of that, you know, sort of literature? Um, that to me is where those quote, paradigm shifting ideas come from, right? And if you study the history of um, ideas in whatever field you like, um, I'm particular to anthropology and cognitive science, um, but that is where they always come from, is someone who is not inundated with the sort of traditional theories of the field comes along and says, well, here's a totally different thing these other people came up with and, um, and, and puts that in there. So that's in my interpretation of Kuhnian paradigm shifts, that would be um, the sort of main main way they come about. Yeah, I, in principle, I agree. I wonder though with cooperation because it's so. I want. I mean, there, there obviously are things that people are not looking at, but because you know, there's also anthropologists, sociologists, computer scientists, like all these people, just pure mathematicians or whatever, working on this. Or well, I guess it's more like applied mathematics, but. I wonder whether maybe, I mean, maybe this is just the big problem, trying to find one framework to fit it all in. 
um, in some sense, I guess game theory is kind of the connecting tissue because it provides one mathematical framework into which you can uh, put all these, like from whatever angle you want to do it. Um, Wait, so okay, one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. one thing I want to flag there is that the other problem with cooperation is it's something we understand decently well, in my understanding of it. Um, and there's like part of the thing that sometimes you have to look for is you need to look for places where people are really confused, right? And social psychology is a great place to look for that because there's so many places <laughs> where people have no fucking idea what's going on, even though they've been looking at it yep. forever. And theory of mind broadly construed this whole intuitive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mess in a lot of ways. There's a lot of great work out there. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't mean to denigrate any one single person, but in terms of, um, you know, a field that knows what's it, what it's about and the best way to look at it. And, and, and also, Oh, no way, not even close. Right. So the problem, the other problem with cooperation might be that we understand it pretty well and we have pretty good models. So this actually happened to me, which was that before I was interested in this sort of stuff, I was really interested in Bayesian models and reinforcement learning models. And I did um, a lab manager stint with uh, Sam Gershman who did, you know, it is like, you know, he, he, does yeah. he, he does everything. He does everything. And, uh, you know, what I should have done from a career perspective is some continuation of Sam's work. Um, because I would have, uh, you know, that would have, uh, that would have been a good move. However, I was like, you know, what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something different. And it took me a while to figure out why I was feeling like that. Uh, because I was so enamored of these computational models when I for, for the first couple of years after I found them. And the problem that I have with them is that they're too good. To me, they do too good of a job of describing what it is they're trying to describe. And so my, and you know, I have lots of friends who are working on this. So I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, belittle their contributions. But for me, I look at that and it's like, if you, if you work on, you know, the Bayesian line of, of work, uh, that's on track. It's going really well. And you're going to come up with some yeah. good papers. Um, uh, but the probability of a game changer, of a paradigm shifter, very low. Because um, they work really well for what they're trying to do. And they're super useful. And they're one of the best things that psychology has come up with. And so it's like, you know what? Uh, or at least in retrospect, I can. I this is my sort of post-hoc theory about why I switched out of that, is it's like, well, you know, I have to find something that's screwed up if I'm going to find a novel way of um, of contributing to it in this maybe, you know, quote, bigger sort of way. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. That's something I've also had to think about because, I mean, so, I mean, in part, this was just because I didn't get positions, but I have applied for some things where that was really something I was wondering, like, should I go into that field? One is, for example, the whole grid cell stuff. Also, especially now, there's a lot of stuff about applying the spatial navigation literature to general cognition. And um, it's super interesting. And uh, I love reading about it. And, you know, had I been given the position, I probably would be doing that now. But I do wonder all the time, like, man, like, exactly what you said, like that... Should we say like that train is going down the its railroads? It's going pretty fast. It's doing really well. Oh, 100%. Like, I'm not 100%, needed. It doesn't yeah. need me. Like, I think part of the question is, you know, if I were there, would I be able to add something that wouldn't otherwise happen? 
Exactly, yeah. And the answer for, for grid signals, I don't know, man. I, for, for Bayesian cognition, I'm not sure that I could bring something to the table that I, I could do something and it'd be cool, but I, uh, you know, I don't know that I would be able to come up with something that is, is truly a unique and idiosyncratic contribution to what the train is already going on, you know? So I think that's totally a thing in science and it's something we don't talk about as much. Yeah, I guess the kind of finding your own path is probably the hardest way, a hardest thing in a way. Well, I guess, I, or not, I guess it really depends. I mean, I remember like E.O. Wilson uh, in, I think it's maybe in his book, it's like a book, what's it called? Like Advice to Young Investigator or something like that. Or Letters to, a, yeah. I, th I think it's in that one where he describes something like he just liked ants and did it. And then like he was one of the top five researchers in the world half a year into his PhD because just no one was looking into ants and that they're super interesting. I think maybe sometimes you just fall into that kind of thing. That goes back to the market size question that we were talking about recently or at the beginning um, several hours ago was that... Um, You know, if you're starting a podcast, do you tackle the largest thing? Or do you start the happiness podcast? Or do you do a niche thing? And then just, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do the niche thing. And, it, you know, if it grows into something big, great. If it just stays with the niche thing, that's fine as well. Um, so I feel like um, that's, a, that's a pretty generalizable. That's something you can take to the bank um, is, are the dynamics of that. Because that's true for business. It's true for uh, marketing any creative endeavor. And uh, science definitely falls somewhere between one of those two categories somewhere between a business and a creative uh work it definitely has a lot of commonality with both those things and so um yeah picking picking something that no one else is working on i think is a pretty bankable strategy uh uh for sure i guess the only problem is you can't ask for advice for that in a way because like i think a natural thing when you don't know what to do is to look for what other people are doing but that's kind of exactly what you almost shouldn't be doing in a way because if you're looking for what other people are doing you're you're in that mindset in a way right i mean look let's let's be honest about this what i want to do is what we're talking about um but that's not what everyone wants to do should be doing uh it's not what it behooves the field for everyone to try and do and so i think there is still a lot of merit for people who um are not of the same mind about what we're describing philosophically and they're better suited to a different way of thinking about things. And science is going to progress really well, not because people like me come and be like, what if we think about everything differently? Um, but because <laughs> yeah. they're making actual progress on like, so what's the actual contribution of this paper? Well, I have a new idea. That's me, right? Like that's, I'm, I'm over, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. they're actually doing the real, the real stuff. Um, so that's, that's hugely important. And, um, so I think everyone, uh, I think to me, everyone should have that conceptual model available and have it come to Jesus talk about where they fit on it, where they want to fit on it and where they're best suited to fit on it. Uh, and I think uh, the whole spectrum is legitimate. Uh, I know what I want to do with it, um, but certainly that's not the case, not going to be the case for everyone, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. I mean, also like you need almost, I feel like um, it's not like that I want per se to be to be just something doing something different or anything like that but i do kind of like doing something that's a bit different and for that to exist you need people who are going down the uh the the more how should we say who are who are doing stuff that's more already accepted and where it's clearer where it's going i do think it is necessarily lonely though like you were saying oh well it's not you know necessarily who do you who do you talk to about that sort of thing who do you who who do you talk to about like well I have, you know, the cognitive science of 
uh, you know, perspective taking. And then I have thick description. How do I marry the two? Who's the person that I, that I like send an email? Who do I call up? Um, and talk to, yeah. I mean, there isn't, I mean, who do, I don't know. Uh, and so, yeah, it is, it is lonely. Whereas like, if I continue with the, <laughs> it seems like you're calling up Mark Renovetta. Well, so that's, that's, you know, that, that's been the most successful call that I've made so far. And I'm honestly not going to complain about that. Uh, that I, that's why I was happy when that happened. Cause it's like, this, it's a rare thing um, to get someone who, uh, you know, is, you know, already on a similar page with that and to have it be that guy. I mean, anyway, so, but the, but the, the point is that, you know, if I was working on Beijing models of cognition, I mean, I could call up all my old mates from, from Boston and we'd, we'd, you know, have a chat about it. Uh, so it's, it's lonelier to do the, the thing. And, you know, that's a, that's a thing that, that works for me. Um, you know, a lot of my, uh, endeavors are lonely endeavors writing for the most part's a lonely endeavor. Um, my podcast, it's nice to talk to people, but most of the work is done with me on my own. Um, most of my science projects so far have been, uh, all myself. So, that's something that I'm working on is, is, is finding more collaborative uh, opportunities because I think I could benefit from a couple of them. But at the end of the day, my, my natural state is a little bit more solitary, I think. And, um, uh, you know, I'm ready to, and also the traveling thing you'll hear in my, in my podcast, all of the, the majority of that, that travel stuff is, is solitary travel. And that to me is the most, most meaningful at least for for the goals of, of doing something like a podcast, um, and so yeah, these solitary endeavors. Because look, at the end of the day, for for ideas, the moment you are a part of a group, that group is influencing the way you think about things. And to me, in my reading of the way the world works, if you want to really get at some truly unique ideas, it takes a lot of time spent alone, and you have to forfeit. Um, some of the group uh, dynamics and that sucks for a lot of reasons it um you know it's a lot more fun to be a part of a group and it can it can be it can be really difficult to be alone on something sometimes and um you know i i think that that's the kind of thing that you should look at and you know people generally should look at and and be like well how do i want to negotiate that how do i want to deal with that trade-off and be realistic about it and rather than idealistic about, oh, it sounds great to want to do, you know, whatever. Um, I do think that there's, you know, uh, it, it, realistic considerations about uh, the the trade-offs involved in, in different strategies for career advancement and, um, you know, developing uh, a sort of train of thought or something. Yeah. Uh- to some extent, something that I've noticed is that I think I almost don't really want to be part of a group. I mean, this is just something I've noticed quite a lot. Like, I've never really, I feel like, I mean, maybe everyone feels this, I don't know. But I've never really, like, been part of one group. I've always kind of been part of a few groups, even socially. I think, like, for example, in school, I think I was usually, like, three-quarter part of that group, half part of that group. And I think everyone else probably assumed I was part of the other groups. Um and it's kind of interesting to me to see how in science this <laughs> seems to be the same thing. Like almost as soon as there is a group and I feel like I'm part of it and I start to move away from it. So I want, I mean, I, yeah. I wonder how much of that is just coincidence or some sort of nonsensical introspection or something. Oh, but it is I think it's totally something I've noticed. 
no, I think I think you're you're definitely on to something there. I'm I'm the same way as you described. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to touch on? Uh, not sure. There's two, three things I'd like to mention once we're finished, um, just because these are not things I want to make public right now. Um, but those should be a lot shorter. Um, there's some more like individual questions. Other than that, I feel like <laughs> I feel like we need to end on a slightly more upbeat note, uh, rather than <laughs> us just saying, "Oh yeah, it's lonely." Oh, it's lonely being me. And then oh. just and then I and then I just stop. Oh, the podcast. gosh, just, you know it's really difficult. It being me, it's it's just there's <laughs> yeah, so exactly. like you think you think that life is good, but no, mine is so difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's. And stop. <laughs> oh. Especially, I'm not sure I'll have, like, you have at the end, you discuss the podcast. I'm not sure I'll do that. So I might just literally just end it right there. <laughs>